Welcome to the Buried Treasures Podcast, brought to you by Majid Uthman, where I interview a new guest every week to discover their journey. I'm Hamza Warsi. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, wa salatu wa salam, ala ashraf al-anbiya'i wal-mursaleen, Sayyidina Muhammad Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu, jazakumullahu khayran for everyone joining us. Uh, today we have somebody who's uh who's unlike any other mashallah he is the the original founder and owner and creator of herb herb so for those who <laughs> know who they know mashallah we have qari usman sharif with us <laughs> how's everything man alhamdulillah for making the drive out no absolutely i mean once i heard about uh you know what your initiative is in the project i was you know, i would be honored to be part of it mashallah plus i think out of all your 14 other scholars, that might have been the best introduction. I mean, no one has the herper. <laughs> right? The herper is, is coming down generation to generation. You know? Yeah, maybe mashallah. We'll, we'll get to discuss it, hopefully, maybe in this podcast. <laughs> mashallah, man. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, where were you born and raised? Yeah, um, I was born in uh, Hyderabad, India, nine, uh, July 1st, 1989. Um, my father immigrated to the United States from India in 1986, I believe. And he was an imam, right? He started off doing imamat in, here in Chicago, Rolling Meadows. And he's still doing imamat in that same masjid. So Ashram. it's been over 30 years, you know, alhamdulillah. So I was born there. I came here, my, my mom, and then my mom bought me here after six months. I was six months old. So I've been pretty much raised here, right, from that time. So I'm 31 now, alhamdulillah. So um, pretty much spent my entire life in Chicago. Besides a few years, I lived in Dallas. But yeah, this is where I was born, uh, pretty much raised, um, and you know, got my education, ta'alim, everything. Mashallah. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned your father. Can you give us a little bit of background uh, about Hafiz Yaqub Sharif? His name, uh, Mashallah, he um, came here in 1986, uh, and he took the position as the Imam of um, Islamic Society of Northwest Suburbs in Rolling Meadows. Um, you know, he was, Mashallah, Hafiz Quran. Um, you know, he had a passion for recitation of Quran, right? And so he, uh, when he came, he told me that, you know, in the Chicago land area, there weren't many people who were Qurra, or there weren't many Qadi. So every single event, whether it be a wedding, whether it be a program, a Nubud, whatever it may be, he was called to recite. Can you recite Quran? So, Alhamdulillah. And, he's, and so he started doing Imamat. And with Imamat, all the responsibilities, you know, five times Salah. And uh, with all the community work, he also would teach Maktab Asr to... Uh, Isha, right? Every uh, Monday through Thursdays. So that that's that schedule is still continuing till today. It's mashallah. been over the, the 35 years, alhamdulillah. Allahu Akbar. So yeah, mashallah, he's uh, someone who, you know, started in the, you know, nowadays it's, well, at least what I see that imams come in and if you see someone someplace for more than five years, it's like, mashallah, you know, <laughs> dude, you made it, you know, you did your thing. Uh, you're able to like, you know, you understood the community and you're able to work with the, you know, the board members uh, and the executive committee. He's been there for 35 years. So when I tell that to other ulama and just people who are in this work, they, some of them can't believe it, like 35 years in one place. But, you know, that's that mashallah, that istiqama is something which that we can learn, you know, from our elders. So that's something that mashallah, I saw, you know, the, in Arabic, they say, istiqama fawqa alfi karama. Right, that having istiqama and being steadfast is greater than you know thousands of miracles. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I think we, you know our the elder generation. One thing we can learn from them is patience and istiqama for sure. Mashallah. So, 
That's awesome, man. So tell me a little bit about this. Um, you you started. When did you start your hips? I started in two thousand and two. I was uh, thirteen years old. Okay. So you're still, what, at the tail end of junior high at this point? Yeah, I'd finished seventh grade. You finished seventh yeah. grade. Okay, mashallah. So why did you want to go do HIVS? <sighs> to be honest, I had no intention. <laughs> right, to, it wasn't like I was bored and my father was like, I'm a Hafiz. I'm gonna be. My father wanted me to be a Hafiz one day, but my mother would always tell him, the day that he says he wants to do HIVS, we'll put him in HIVS. Never want to force him. Because yeah. we see cases of people who are forced or you know uh, made to do something it, does, it, it might not work out, especially with Tahfiz al-Quran. We see a lot of cases like that. So for me, honestly, my inspiration was uh, I had two friends. Uh, one was his name is Mufti Sajid. He lives in Dallas now. And Hafiz Abid, you know, and their father, Uncle Shabir, he just passed away. They were family friends. They moved away to Dallas. Mm -hmm. So for like two years, I hadn't seen them. And when they moved back, they invited us over for a little dawah. So when I walked into the house, I saw that uh, Mufti Sajid had a beard. And I thought he was his father. I didn't even recognize him. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Hafiz Abid too. So I sit and talk to them and they're like, we were memorizing Quran now. I was like, what? What do you mean? Yeah, we're going to the school called IIE. Uh -huh. And I know five Jews and we, we both know five Jews. So that just intrigued me, you know? Mashallah. And they were like, we live there. And I was like, what? You live there? It's like, yeah, we, we play basketball every day. <laughs> I was like, I got to go to IIE, you know? <laughs> so I started asking my mom. My mom said no. She said that it was December. She was like, if you, if you finish the school year off, and you come back in the summer and you're still excited about going to Madrasa Darunum, we'll enroll you. So as soon as the first day of summer break, I went back to them. I said, you promised me. So then they they took me. Alhamdulillah, you know, they they discussed it. They made no sure. I said, inshallah, he said he wants to do it. So that was, to be honest, it wasn't like I had a dream or it wasn't like, yeah. you know, like my father was like, the day I was born, he held me and he was like, he's going to be half. And my mom was like, yes, for sure. Sometimes, you know, we think like that. We fantasize about certain situations. It's just, I saw two friends. I was excited by something they were doing. But a lot of times, youngsters, and that's what happened to me, when you start doing something, you don't realize what it is. Mm -hmm. But then towards the middle and towards the end, you know, when you're in the process, it might hit you like, subhanAllah, this is something else. So that's sort of what happened to me. They inspired me because uh, I saw a change in them. I saw the way they were behaving. I saw, you know, the way they were talking to their parents. It was just different because mm -hmm. I'm going to public school on a daily basis. I didn't really see that same level of adab, respect with my friends that I saw they were having with their parents, the way they were talking to my father, my mother, I was like, man, there's something different about these guys now. Mm. You know, and Saji was a little bit older. He was, he, he was probably, he finished eighth grade or he was, he was a freshman. Abed was my, my age, but um, they had maturity beyond their ears, I felt like. So I was like, man, there's, there has to be with them memorizing Quran. So that really, they really helped me and inspired me that uh, made me want to go and do it. Mashallah. Nice, mashallah, man. Yeah. That's amazing. So, you enroll at IAE in Elgin. Yeah. Okay. So you you're walking in as a 13 year old. Um, <laughs> are there many other people who are around the same age? There's a lot of older guys. Like what's? Yeah. Well, the thing with mo uh, most uh, schools or institutes of uh, Quranic memorization, they have there's no there's usually a, a minimum age, meaning you have to be at least maybe 12. Mm -hmm. But then there's no like maximum. There's no cutoff. So. The age group was all over the place. There was 13-year-olds, 14, 15, 16, 8. We had people in high school. We had people in college. MashaAllah. So it's so, and that's the thing with tahfiz, with memorization of Quran. It's it really doesn't matter what age you are. They'll put you in any class. So in your class, you'll have 18-year-olds, 15-year-olds, and 14-year-olds. It's just scattered because you're all doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's not age restrictive. So there were other 13-year-olds. So there was like you had the younger guys, and then you had the guys who were a little older, and then you had the guys who were like maybe in college and stuff. So you mm -hmm. had different age groups. Okay, mashallah. So when you got in, uh, whose class were you placed in? 
um, the principal at that time was Moan Abdullah Salim Saab. So he, my father requested that, you know, um, you know, Moana Saab, I know you for a while. Is it okay if uh, he can maybe, you know, uh, if, if you give your blessing, maybe Moana, if you can put him in Moana Aziz's, Moana Aziz Saab's class. He's one of the teachers there. Mm -hmm. So Moana Saab just looked at him and said, I know what I'm doing here. He's like, make him go to Moana Saab's class. So then I just went inside of Moana Saab's class. Okay, so he's one of the teachers there. He's still teaching. Mashallah. Quran. So I uh, started and finished with Moana Saab. Mashallah. So. so how was that first day coming into a madrasa? Now you're actually living there as well, correct? Yeah. Well, yeah, my parents didn't give me a... Uh, some parents usually bring their, their kids to these situations where they have boarding and they just let them ease in, right? They'll, they'll, uh, they'll commute for a week. Mm -hmm. My mom just packed my bag and said, first day you're staying there. <laughs> so the first night was rough because mm -hmm. I was like, well, this is... Like when you're going there, you're thinking about uh, sleeping and living with friends, dormitory life, waking up, having break time, basketball, not having your parents on your case. Mm -hmm. But then you soon, the first night I realized this is going to be tough. No mother, no father, no, my siblings aren't with me. Um, so that first night was really difficult. I thought that maybe, did I make the wrong decision? Uh, is this something I really want to do? Because I'm only 13 also. Yeah. Right? I'm still pretty You're much young. young. I'm very young. So um, these thoughts came across my mind that, um, man, I don't know if I can do this for how long. But you know, I got through the first night. I sat in class. Um, actually, I couldn't even see my friends. Like, I hadn't seen uh, Abed and Mufti Sajid for a while. And then the first day of school, I don't see them. So I'm asking everybody, where are these guys? They're like, oh, they're not here yet. So I started panicking. Did they quit? Because <laughs> I hadn't spoken. So I, that really got me worried. Like, man, they're not here. I got to sit and read Quran for five hours straight. And once break, they're like, don't worry about breaks. Another five hours. I was like, oh, man. And I was really like, man, I don't know. But then when I saw them, they walked in late. That sort of gave me some more, you know, like some strength. And I was like, okay, at least these guys are here. Oh, so they started talking. Like, what room are you in? Are you going to stay with us and we'll help you? And then so, you know, everything worked out. But yeah, at the beginning, definitely very tough. Oh, subhanAllah. Yeah. Did you know anybody else inside the madrasa except those two? Uh, no, actually, I didn't. So I that's it. That's it. I just know those two. Um, there might have been some people who my father, like his friends, but I didn't really know their their kids, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't have that type of relationship with them. So, yeah, those were the only two people that I knew when I went to I. What was your schedule like in terms of memorization? So, uh, usually most, uh, like most madaris and most places of uh, tahfiz where they memorize Quran, you get up early morning, right? So, you have Salatul Fajr, you have some Athkar, the whole school would read, and then you have breakfast. And then classes would usually start around 7.30 or 8, depending on you know, whether it's summer or winter. And you'd have class till uh, 11.30, 12, right? So they usually have one four-hour slot, and then we'd have lunch. And then after lunch, we'll be Salatul Dhuhr. And then after Salatul Dhuhr, we would have academics. We'd have math, science, English, right? So those are mandatory. So we'd have those classes um, till Asr. And then a little bit before Asr, then Asr to Maghrib would be break. So mm -hmm. everybody would be playing basketball, football, you know, sports. Uh, everybody, one thing about Mother says everybody's active because you got nothing else to do. So <laughs> if you just sit in your room, you're going to get bored. You have to find things to do. So um, I feel like there's some of the most resilient children because you constantly have to be keeping yourself busy or you'll just too much boredom. Mm -hmm. So Asr al-Maghrib would be sports. And then after Salat al-Maghrib, uh, we'd have three students would come, make tilawah of Quran, have some more athkar. And then you'd have dinner. And then after dinner, you'd have like a night session, a night class. Mm -hmm. And then till Isha, then after Salat al-Isha, everyone would have to go to sleep. 
So when you first started your memorization, was it was there any difficulty in memorizing and reading, or did you already have a decent background beforehand? Uh, my reading wasn't that good, so I had my my teacher told me that for you to efficiently memorize the Quran, you have to be able to recite the Quran efficiently, mm-hmm. right? So until your fluency is not there, one should not even attempt to memorize Quran. That was difficult for me. I thought I knew how to read. I was like, "What's he talking about?" Um, but then he made me just read the Quran over and over as many times as I could for like six to seven months oh, before, I, before I could even memorize a verse. That was tough because in my eyes, I was like, I'm wasting time. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to come in here in two and a half years. People come in yeah. two years. It's my thing. Finish and I'm out of here. Yeah. It doesn't work. Sometimes, you know, we have to understand that things don't work out our way. Allah has a different plan. So I had to work on my Nazara first. So he wanted me to be able to read fluently. And then once I learned how to recite uh, fluently, then he would he allowed me to start memorization. Nice, mashallah. Did he start you on a thirteen liner, a fifteen liner? I just um, I just saw what my father would read in his whole life thirteen liner, so I just started a thirteen. Okay, liner. mashallah, yeah. mashallah. So once you're going through it, when when are you eventually picking up flow of the memorization? It takes time, to be honest. Um, diff- the thing about Hif's uh, class is different teachers have different styles. Mm-hmm. Um, some teachers will give you small amounts. Maybe they'll start you off with three verses or three lines that show me that you can efficiently memorize three lines for two months. Then we'll move it up to four lines, mm-hmm. then five lines. So to build your uh, you know, your mental aptitude and capacity to memorize, they'll bring you along. So Arustad didn't have any cap. In the beginning, he would be like, memorize whatever amount you can correctly, though, meaning the pronunciation and the reading has to be correct with no mistakes. So if that's four lines, do four lines. Do that for a while, and then you can... Uh, once you've got the hang of it, then increase your amount. Because you don't just go in and start with one page, right? Eventually, everyone gets to a one page or a one and a half page, and then that it evens out. But in the beginning stages, it was very little. Okay, mashallah. Yeah. So then once it eventually picks up, were there was there ever a, a time during your memorization where you hit like a roadblock? Many and roadblocks, yeah. Can you expand upon that and like what got you through that? Well, w- one aspect is... You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you know, The Quran is there for you. We've made it easy for you. So who's there to take it? And, you know, whether it's memorize it or recite it. But, you know, that real, uh, that's there. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that the Quran is there so you can memorize it, you know. Mm-hmm. So we made the Quran f- easy for you to memorize. But then the actual process is not necessarily easy. It takes a lot of hard work, a lot of effort. So there were times where you just couldn't memorize a page. You know, you memorize, You tried memorizing a page and you're just like, man, I can't get this. You're failing once, twice, or you, you can't memorize more than three, four lines. It's like you already memorized, let's say, 10 juz, and you have a routine of one page. And you, you come to this page, you're like, man, I can't. The second half of this page is so difficult, yeah. right? There's that. And then there's other external issues. Sometimes living in a dormitory life as a 14-year-old, there's other issues that are going on in your life that affect your academics. Living quarters. You got, you got you got into an altercation or a dispute with your roommate, your classmate, your friend, uh, your your, te- your mat teacher is mad at you. You're not doing your work. And you're focusing too much there. You're not putting time in here. So there's all these factors that you have to keep in mind. It's not that you're just memorizing Quran. You have to do everything else too, meaning you have to uh, make sure you stay up with your academics. You have to make sure that uh, your revision is strong. Your revision gets weak. So revision and your subak are linked, right? It's all part of your memorization. But I think the biggest roadblocks were times where I felt like mother's life was getting too tough. I didn't want to do it anymore. You feel like leaving. So there was times I approached my mom and dad that, you know what? Um, 
if you guys want me to do it, I'll do it. I'll continue. Uh, but I want to, l- let me commute. I can't stay here anymore. But they always would sit me down and give me targhib. And they would, give, they would encourage me to look, you're in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's going to be difficulties. And more than the average youngster, you're doing such a thing that it's, it's going to displease shaitan for sure. And he's going to, you know, the spiritual aspect is always try to take you off track. For him, if he can get one student to not memorize the Quran who was, it's a huge victory. Yeah. So they would always tell me this and that would be like, okay, that's it. I can't, I can't let this get to me. You know, now I'm just feeling down because, um, you know, I'm, I'm basically, mothers of life can get redundant. It's the same thing over and over and over. And it's not easy. You know, you're sleeping on a bunk bed, no parents, uh, no home food. You know, those, so those things people might say, well, they affect you when you're 14 and 15. It doesn't matter what age you are. If I take you out of your, your normal environment, put you in a completely different environment and tell you now function, that's, this is your normal life. And then there's a bunch of restrictions placed upon you too. Mm-hmm. When you wake up, when you sleep, yeah. right? Uh, to, to such an extent of when you eat, whereas a 14-year-old at home, he can go to the refrigerator anytime, grab some food. So these things sometimes, uh, you know, me as a teacher, I really keep in mind that, you know, the students are going through different the ebbs and flows of, you know, even psychologically, you know, and mental health is such an important thing. So sometimes students just need breaks. Sometimes students just need to be told that close your Quran, it's okay, take a break. Mm-hmm. So for me, those roadblocks came where I think I was mentally just exhausted from the process. Mm-hmm. But my family and my ustad always encouraged me that, look, you're on the right track. It's okay. Right now, you're just feeling like this. Inshallah, you know, things will get, you know, easier, inshallah. So I always, for some people, that advice works at times. And for me, alhamdulillah, that was enough to get me going. And then you come to a certain point in your hips where I feel like you become self-motivated. And you just, you know, push yourself. So, yeah, for me, it was times where the Quran became difficult. And then there was times where there was external issues, just living the life in the dorm that I didn't want to do it anymore. So uh, that led me to just just say that, you know, let me just not do hips at all. So and I think this is very common. You talk to other people that spend time doing hips. There might be some students, they start and they finish in one year. They're super, mashallah. They fly through it. Excellent student, favorite student, best student. But that's, that's not everybody. That's mm-hmm. the minority in my opinion, right? Majority of us who memorize Quran, there are there's difficulties, there's hardships. Uh, so, you, you know, you have to always um, continuously make dua. And it's difficult to explain that to a 14 or 15-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. The concept of dua and uh, fixing your... Correcting your niyyah, for us, it's just like, man, I need to pass this just so we, my mom can give me something, or I need to pass this just <laughs> that my ustad's not going to be angry with me. That's the reality of the situation. So, honestly, it was for me, it was like, I need to get from this Monday to Friday. Mm-hmm. Go home for a day and a half. Then I need to get from this Monday. So, I just took it a week at a time. Week. I need to finish. And I never looked at, like, uh, let me do these three, these three juice and the next. I, I just wanted to take a week by week by week. By, that's the best approach, I think. Nice. Also, it becomes overwhelming. Definitely. Um, how long did you spend in Madrasa over there? In Elgin, uh, in the IIE, I spent three years memorizing the Quran. Three years, mashallah. So during that time, I mean, you mentioned dormitories a few times. For those listeners that may not understand what it means to live in the dorms, can you can you expand a little bit upon that? So you have, for example, 80 to 100 students. You have 15 to 20 rooms, I would say, uh, if I remember correctly. I say 15. So each room you have about eight to 10 students. Uh, and so you're sharing a room with about, yeah, eight to 10 guys. So you have bunk beds. Um, and pretty much you, all you bring to your dormitory is your suitcase, your clothes, and whatever other necessities you want to bring. You have you want to bring some snacks, food. 
uh, stuff like that. And then you just keep that. You have your own. Some people had lockers. Some people just, I used to just keep myself in a, a suitcase under my bed, right? Mm -hmm. And just when I need something, pull out the suitcase, take my stuff. And pretty much that's your living quarters, meaning that's your, you have your classroom area. And then anytime you want to just go relax or you want to just, uh, you know, basically like at home, your, your, your bedroom or your living room, that would be your dormitory. But the only thing is <laughs> you, you go in there, there's, you don't really have the privacy at times that you would have at home. You're sharing it with 10 people. Yeah. 10 different people, 10 different mannerisms, 10 different, uh, they have, uh, you know, 10 different personalities. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to work with them. You can't just be like, you know, for example, I'll just give you one, a, a small example, right? And it might not seem significant, but uh, so I spent three years there. Then later on, I went to study somewhere else. So when I used to study somewhere, I, I, would ha I had a habit of keeping the fan on. Regardless if it's hot or, or it's cold. Yeah. And some guys, they hated that. Yeah. You know? And I was like, what's the big deal? And some guys, I didn't understand how bad they, they didn't like it until one guy the guy just threw something at the fan. He's like, yo, you either turn the fan on or get out. Get out of here. Because I would have it, I would have the fan on even when it was like kind of cold outside. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was difficult now. Now that because I for whatever reason I needed that noise, I can't sleep now. But I have to keep in mind, I have to be considerate of my roommate. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I talked, I was like, no problem. I'll, you know, I'll have the fan off. It's a small, it's a, it's an example on a small scale. But the thing is when you live with other people, you have to consider other people's feelings and other people, you know, what makes them comfortable and uncomfortable. That could be difficult because you can't just live how you want at home in your room. You could do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So I think what was difficult living in boarding life initially was getting used to um, living with multiple people with different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Right. And getting used to their 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 likes, what they don't like. Um, and that kind of stuff, I think, is what people don't understand is that not only am I trying to study every single day, memorize, I'm trying to figure out how to conduct myself and get acclimated with my new friends, my new roommates. Mm -hmm. So that could be challenged. It depends on you know, some schools have 800 students, 700 students. So, you, you know, it, and a, on a big scale. So, you know, stuff like that. So I think living in a dormitory, then you had a shower area. They have about seven, eight showers. Everybody uh, would go there whenever you need to shower. You take your your clothes, your towel, go do you know, uh, shower, come back to your room. So that dormitory area was our living quarters. So that's where we would play. That's where we would um, relax. If you want to go and just hang out for a bit, you know, clear your mind, that would be the area where we would go. Okay, mashallah. Mm -hmm. So now when you're memorizing the Quran, um, you're going through the ups and downs of it. And then eventually you mentioned there's a phase where you're kind of self-motivated. Yes. When was that for you? I think for me, uh, to be honest, it was when I started uh, accumulating uh, the more atza I got under my belt, the closer I got to the finish line, I felt like I can do this. Mm -hmm. Right. And then sort of a quarter, not even a quarter, a little earlier, I feel like pretty early in my hips, I, I fell in love with the, the art form of recitation. That that became like, it was it opened something new for me. That when I when I first time I heard, um, because most students when they first go to madrasa they'll listen to Sheikh Abdurrahman Sudais and Shuraim. Every <laughs> you go to any madrasa in the world, it's like yo, who are the first two reciters you listen to? It's those two. I remember someone was playing Sheikh Ajami, Sheikh mm -hmm. Ahmad Ali Ibn Ajami in his room, and I was like, man, I've never heard the Quran being recited like that. Allah. Right? That was the first time I heard someone recite other than Sudais or Shuraib. Even the Imams in the Madrasa would were the similar tune, right? They would recite. <laughs> when I heard him, I was like, man, what is that? I went into the room and the, the guy who was playing that that CD was actually he was finished with high school. He was mm -hmm. much older than me. So I just asked him, I was like, 
what were you listening to? He's like, yeah, that Sheikh, his name is Sheikh Ajami. He's like, pretty cool, right? I was like, yeah, I never heard anything, anyone recite like that. He played it again. I was just like, yo, can you just leave it on for a bit? He's like, yeah. So when I heard Sheikh Ajami recite, I was like, subhanAllah, like I had never experienced a recitation like that. And this is, this is before like YouTube being readily, well, first of all, you don't even have laptops or phones or computers and madrasa, right? Not allowed. So for me, to hear that type of recitation was the first time. And I was young. I was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. And after that, I was like, I fell in love with recitation. Mashallah. Where it became a, I would go home on the weekend from Darul and I would spend six hours a day listening to Quran. Mashallah. Mujawad, you know? And then I got into Mujawad recitation. So I would sit there for three hours, listen to Shaykh Ramadan, Hajjaj, Al-Hindawi, I would listen to Shaykh Na'in, I would listen to uh, Shaykh Basit, Abu Al-Ainan, just, I just, then I just got way too much into it. Whereas my mom was like, you don't do anything, but you come home, you spend no time with us. You just go straight to the computer and you're just going on QuranReciters.com and that's it. And that's all I found. It just became like my thing, right? Mm-hmm. I just fell in love with it, subhanAllah. That was what triggered my passion. That now, I, So for me to become someone who wants to recite like that, you have to memorize the Quran, mm. right? So that just, that got me going. But even with that passion, there was times where you would still be mentally exhausted. So, you know, so it doesn't matter how... Um, passionate about you are about something everybody needs breaks and sometimes there comes a time where you feel like man i just need a a long break now Mm -hmm. right but yeah that time where when i started listening to the reciter the different reciters of quran and i fell in love with that i think that motivated me that now i whether uh i uh whether uh, whatever regardless of how many difficulties i come across i have to finish memorizing the quran like i have to do this yeah so how was it leading up to your final sabaq our teacher had a very strict um, way of finishing, meaning you had to, um, he had to be 100% sure in his mind that before you recite your last sabak, your 29 and three quarters juz are strong. If, if there was any doubt that they were not, he would come to your last, your last sabak, your last lesson. He would not let you recite it. He would make you revise. And you had to revise until he was confident in your hips. So for me, when he got towards the end, um, I did my, uh, I was, I just kept, kept going. I was like, it's inevitable. He's probably going to stop me. I didn't get stopped. I feel, I think I'm pretty sure I didn't get stopped. So Alhamdulillah, when I got to the last juz, I memorized and, but I noticed that towards the last five juz, he started tightening up a lot on my revision to mm. make sure those previous juz were strong. Um, so then I just, you know, he basically four or five months before I finished, he gave me a date that you're, you, I want you to finish by here and I want you to do this much this day. And I want you to revise like this. So he set out a, like a calendar, mm-hmm. and a, or like a schedule for me that this is what you have to do for the next four months if you want to graduate this summer. So I just stuck to that, just did it. How was graduation? It was amazing, you know, subhanAllah, just um, seeing, sitting there. Because um, when you, the first graduation when I was 13, seeing other students getting the turban tied on their head. Mm-hmm. Um, again, some things is hard to describe until you, until you, um, go through it or you witness it. So I always used to witness these students getting the dastar done. And I said, inshallah, I want to do that too one day. And I would discuss with my friends like, man, I can't wait till we finish. You know, we're going to finish dastar bandi that we're going to, we're not going to do anything for two months. We're just going to play ball. We're just going to relax. You know, <laughs> we said, all, we all, and we'd have this conversation every single week, you know, because for us, it was like the hips was every day, every day, every day. For some, for me, it was also it was like one was finishing and making my parents happy. As that moment where you know your ustad is finally happy with you but not only that it was also to be honest was man now I get a little bit of a break because three mm. years was pretty intense Yeah, minus the weekends five days was pretty 
my Fajr to Isha was scheduled out for me. Mm-hmm. So you wanted to just finish and get some free time. But Alhamdulillah, sitting up there, having our principal speak, uh, you know, knowing that my Ustad approved of me, my, my Ustad said that, you know, we're giving you the certificate of completion, the Sanad, that you have finished the Quran, you've memorized it uh, in the manner which I'm happy in the way that <clears throat> we know that you should be called the Hafiz of Quran. That made me feel like I did, you know, I accomplished something. And for me, Ashanda. even as I sit here today, I feel like that's the greatest accomplishment I've ever had. Mashallah. For me, it was to finish the memorization of the Quran. Mashallah. So, how long, how was your first Tarawih? Uh, my first Tarawih, actually, I was 14, and there were some older students in the Madrasa. They were leading somewhere, and they just came to me one day in Ramadan. They drove and they had cars. They're like, We're taking you for Tarawih. You need to get this portion ready. You down? Okay, I'm, I was like, Okay, Bismillah, I'm ready. I prepared. So I started leading when I was 14. Mashallah. They took me. I did like six or eight rakahs. It was like, I think it was seven juz, Surah An'am. And uh, that was the first time. It was NIU, right, oh, uh, where Sheikh Saad was. And yeah. Sheikh Saad was there. So I went there with uh, a few students, you know, uh, Mufti Asif Umar and Hafiz Azam Hashmi. But Azam Bhai, they, they told me, we want you to come for a few days. So that was my first taste of Tarawih uh, when I was 14. And then I led the next. And then right when I finished, I led in. Um, I've been leading from that time. Basically, from the age of 15 till now, Mashallah. every year. Mashallah. Minus maybe, I think, one year I missed. Uh, I've led, I've had the opportunity to lead. So that was my first taste was leading in NIU. Uh, they had like a small masjid in, in the house. Yeah, the house, Northern yeah, yeah. Illinois, but Northern Illinois University. So I led there. That was my first time leading Tarawi. Nice, mashallah. So now, mashallah, you've been leading for about, for roughly 15 years plus. What advices do you have for those um, who may be leading Tarawih or have intention to lead? Maybe Hufad, they haven't led in a while. I know it's a kind of like a fully loaded question, yeah. but just in a general perspective, what yeah, advice I is... Mean, <clears throat> the first thing I would say is that Hufad understand that leading the Salatu Tarawih is the greatest and it's the, most, it's the best way for you to manage your Quran. There's no way, if you leave Salatul Taraweeh every year, that's a guarantee that your Quran will stay solid. Because we know there's a hadith, you know, present that if you don't preserve your Quran, it'll leave you very fast, right? Mm-hmm. Very fast. And there's there's other, there's so many hadith regarding the person who memorizes Quran and then na'udhu billah forgets it. Mm-hmm. It's a very serious, like this, like you said, it's a very loaded question. Uh, the whole issue of Becoming Hufaz and the quality of Hufaz is something that we really have to address as Madaris and just as uh, people who are memorizing the Quran, right? It's it's something that has to be addressed. But I would say that I always tell my students, you should lead Tarabi because number one, it's, it's giving back to your community, right? Hufaz, once you memorize the Quran, people want to stand and they want to make Salatul Tarawih, they look to you. You're the ones who are going to lead it, right? Or else mm-hmm. other people will just, all they can do is recite the last 10 surahs, for example. So number one, look at it as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala giving you opportunity to give back to the community. But secondly, for a hafiz, it's the best way for him to, to maintain his Quran. One juz recited in Salatul Taraweeh, in my experience, there's no equivalent, there's no equivalency to that. Uh, in, uh, in you know, If you sit and recite to someone the same juz 10 times, mm-hmm. reciting it once in Salatul Taraweeh, I think is more beneficial. It will strengthen it more, in my experience. The way you have to prepare for Taraweeh is way different. There's, you know, this like night and day type of difference in preparation to recite by your teacher or to your friend and preparation to when you want to recite something properly, being the key word, is Salatul Taraweeh. So that's why I think Taraweeh is, you know, some people don't lead it and their Quran is still strong. Does, I'm not saying that if you don't lead Salatul Taraweeh, your Quran can't be strong. That's not mm-hmm. what I'm saying. But definitely if you do lead, it's a great way to make, keep your Quran strong. 
Mashallah. Yeah. So I want to trace back a little bit. Um, so how did you come up with Erp Erp? Erp Erp, yeah. So <laughs> switching gears. Erp Erp honestly meant, like I said, we were um, 13, 14 year old kids. You have nothing to do. So um, I guess I, we were just, uh, me and a couple of friends were in Madrasa. We were just, we were, I mean, we always used to joke around. Um, so we just, we saw someone doing something silly. And I was like, man, that's, that's, I'm like, or someone said some uh, some type of joke. I think they said a joke and it wasn't funny. So I we I, I sort of looked at one of my friends and he looked at me and I just said, erp, erp, you know, like sort of a high pitched <laughs> voice. And he just he was like, "What was that?" I was like, "Man, look, that, you, you hear what he said." He's like, and then it just became this thing where, if anybody said something silly or if anybody said something that was just obnoxious or that was trying to be funny and wasn't funny, we just drop that line. It was <laughs> like you don't have to say anything long. Just say her perp and that would that was it's the best way to express yourself. It was just this funny thing. And then I just started with a group of friends. Yeah. Right. Just like my close friends and mother Everybody picked up on it. They like, picked up years later yeah, too. Like somebody told me that they went back to IE like four or five years ago, and they saw students in the dormitory using her burp, and, <laughs> and they asked him, "Do you know? Do you know who started this? Where it came from?" They had no idea. Yeah. So it's funny, like the sana, there's there's a lot of inqita, like nobody knows. <laughs> but the asal is yeah, what 2002 to 2005 is where the her burp started. Nice, so, nice. And then it's funny because <laughs> when I went overseas, I started doing it over there too. <laughs> and it, it's, people started doing it there. And they were like, Yo, where did you come up with this? I had to give them this whole story. So I, was, I, I just joke around with my friends. I'm like, man, I made Herperp International. You know? <laughs> so people from, like I had classmates from Hong Kong and Germany. They also took it back. So I was like, you guys need to go back with this knowledge. Spread it. You know, so it's, it'll be a worldwide phenomenon, inshallah. <laughs> so it was just something as kids we came up with. It's funny because... Now I mean, I'm 31, and like even when I'm with my buddies, we'll still use it. You know, yeah. it's just it's just something. It's an easy way to express, you know, for us to express ourselves. So it was just something that we started. Um, it's really silly, but um, it was funny. I was like, "How is this thing still alive?" And I've been gone from IE for like 15 years now. Yeah, I'm they're sure. still doing it. So yeah. I was like, "I hope that just that doesn't become my, my like <laughs> the herp legacy." You know, yeah. I hope I'm able to do something more than that. You know, in shot love. Yeah, you know, like I said, man, when when you're in Madrasa, it's all you have are your roommates, your friends. Uh, and sports is huge. Like every kid that goes to Madrasa knows how to play basketball, it seems, right? Mm -hmm. Minus, so sports and staying active. So those years were some of the most active years of my life. Because all you were doing is Quran, your academics, sports. Quran, academic sports, that's it. So that was our life. And we're really, you know, and, and especially most 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds are at home. Mm -hmm. They get to spend more time with their mom, their dad we were unconventional that we were already living this life or most people earliest would start at 18. Like if you're 18, you maybe go into the military or if you're 18, your parents will, okay, now let's send them to, uh, you know, a boarding school or let's send, but we were starting it at the age of 13, 14. So for us, it was like, it was different. We were very young, but I think it also gave us a, a certain level of maturity of how to deal with certain situations, um, how to live with other people. Um, and also, a beautiful thing that I that I'm really happy that I got from the dormitory was our teachers lived with us. Mashallah. Two of my ustads who I have a lot of respect for, right? Moana Moana Zisab, Dawan Barkato, and Moana Abdurrahim Tahir Sab. So they lived with us. So we were able to see, you know, you learn a lot by just uh, observing people. They don't Mashallah. have to say much. So I would just by watching Moana Zisab late night, sometimes he would be up doing mutala or studying. Or Moana Aziz uh, getting up early morning before Fajr making wudu. 
you know, whether he's making tilaw or whether he's studying books or make watching or just observing him doing wudu. Right? Mm. How how is Mawana's like we learn how to do wudu uh, after Maghrib, right? In our in our fit class, but watching him do wudu, right? The way he's uh, and the, the du'as that he's reading, hearing him, right? Watching Mawana uh Tahir Saab making his nafil. Look at the way he's making salah. So I was we were able to observe and then learning adab from them practically, right? Seeing how they interacted with each other, seeing how they interacted with people that came from outside. People from outside would come and always want to visit them. Mm-hmm. So you learn, I learned so much. By watching those teachers when I was, and I was only 13. And when you're young, you soak stuff up, right? Like you see, like I have a two-year-old daughter. Mashallah. It's like, you have to be careful what you say, because they, <laughs> they don't forget anything. So when I was 13, 14, 15, it was like, you, everything that I, like I saw Muasa wearing a certain type of kurta, mm-hmm. I would just copy him. Or yeah, I saw him wearing collar kurta, not non-collar kurta. I saw him wearing a topi. It looks like, you know, it looks like a boat. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it comes from a particular region in India, right? Um, a particular scholar used to wear it, but I see Moana saw wearing it. I would get, I get one too. Like, where mm-hmm. can I get that? Or I see them wearing a turban or wearing a rumal. Just watching their and their mannerisms, <clears throat> I think the students who were there at my time, it really benefited us to sure. learn from them because eventually they moved out. But mm. I was really happy that I was there at the time where they lived there. We learned a lot. There was times when Moana Aziza would just sit after Salatul Isha and just start talking to us. Mashallah. And he would just be like, let me just, he would, and he, he would start one story and then go into another story. And then one hour would pass by and you wouldn't want him to stop. Mm-hmm. Those were the best because subhanAllah, his, because of his mutala, how much research he does, when he starts speaking, he can just, he just goes and goes and goes, right? Um, and you don't really have an uh, idea of, what kind of, how much knowledge our teachers had until you get older. And then when I started studying the Islamic science, then I, re, I really look back, I was like, wow, man, they had, the amount of knowledge they had was subhanAllah, it was something else. So if I wasn't dorming there, I wouldn't be able to get those sessions with Mu'an Aziz after Isha. Mm-hmm. If I wasn't dorming there, I wouldn't be able to go sit in Mu'an Tahir's room after I started and talk to him. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to go to Mu'an Ubaidullah, Mu'an Saad, Mu'an Abdurrahman, any of the teachers. They were always there ready for us. Why? Because we lived there. So it, it became like, it was a school, but it became sort of like a family environment, mm-hmm. right? Like you, your teachers were also your caretakers. Mashallah. So that that bond, subhanAllah, you know, like the, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, you know, on the day of, on the day of Qiyamah, that friends, you know, who were the best of friends uh, will become enemies on that day, right? Uh, except for those people who forged friendships or loved each other for the sake of Allah. Right, so I felt that any friendship that I have, even to this day, my closest friends are people who I studied the deen with, because that friendship was forged in something which was, it's more powerful than anything, uh, you know, relegated just to, just for dunya, like you know, give and take type situation. We studied the deen together, so the bond that was formed was extremely powerful. You know, those are, I would say that those are the friendships I still have. Fifteen years ago, those are still the friends Mashallah. I have, the ones that you spent. So that verse, you know, that I saw. That verse was mashallah, that verse. And then, you know, having good suhbah, you know, having other people who memorize Quran, being your friends was very important. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about suhbah so much in the Quran. And, you know, having people who are righteous, uh, you know, fear Allah, but how, how are you going to learn how to fear Allah? Being around your asatisah, your teachers, and being with people who are like-minded. So I think... That was one huge benefit. With all the difficulties and struggles that came with boarding life, the payoff was, I think, enormous. Right? This, the payoff was be, getting able to see Ahlullah and sitting with them. You know, and people crave, people want that so badly. So I always tell people too, like, if you're getting, you know, uh, knowledge of Deen from online sources, keep that's awesome. 
but also try, you know, whenever you can to go sit with scholars in the in their company. There's certain things you learn from that experience that you can get from other ways, right? Like just from maybe an online class or a weekend course. Those are great. But suhba is very it's it's something which is very powerful. Mashallah. You literally stole like two questions out of my head right now. Okay. Yeah, mashallah. <laughs> um so after you finished Hibs, um, what were you doing? So I, I finished um <clears throat> When I was 16, mm-hmm. I went back to high school. Uh, I did a year of high school. And then after a year, I f- they, they had me. So I was supposed to be a junior in high school. But they had me doing junior. They said, put me in junior year. But I also had to take freshman and sophomore classes. So I was like, I don't know how long this is going to take. So I finished that one year of high school. <clears throat> then the next year, I just decided to, I want to finish it fast. So I took the GED exam. Mm-hmm. I finished that. And then I, I went, I started going, I went to, um, I started community college. Okay. Right? So I was doing my, uh, trying to get my associates and then going into business management. Right. So I was just on that course. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to get my four year degree in business management, do finish up my, I was in my second, uh, close to my second, finishing my second year at Harper finish, you know, the, Finish, transfer to the four-year college, and then get my degree and, you know, go that route. But then um, <clears throat> in the middle of that second year, I, things started to happen. But, yeah, right after I I, t- I did the traditional, what a lot of students do is I just went back to school. And I wanted to just, you know, get my degree and start working, you know. But uh, in the middle of that process, uh, I decided I changed my mind and I wanted to go do something else. So what changed? I would say that I was 18 or almost 18. <clears throat> And I, that year, I was leading Salat al-Tarawih in displays. So it was quite a drive. So my mom would take me every day. Mm-hmm. She would take me for Salah. Um, so it was like a little musalla. They would have like 30 to 40 people gathered there. So I was leaning there. Uh, and for the last like six months, there was some feeling where I had, where I was just like, what I'm doing right now, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, parents are happy. I wasn't really someone who was super academically inclined in school. Like I would just, I was doing my thing. But as far as like, going above and beyond or being super excited about it not really it wasn't my thing but i would just you know i was gonna get my degree because that's like i wanted to do that and that would be my outlet obviously once you get your degree then you're gonna go out in the workplace find a job and continue but when i was between 17 and 18 especially that ramadan and two three months before that and then that ramadan was where i made my decision i started just um thinking a lot about the time I spent in memorizing the Quran and, you know, whenever something happened with Quran and recitation and tilawa, that just lit me up. Like that got me excited. That's what I loved. Mm. So the thought, I actually didn't have any idea or inclination to do uh, Adam course, to be 100% honest. I was like, I felt that I'd memorize the Quran that was sufficient, right? Maybe not the best way to think, but I'm just being honest. Yeah. So, um, I never really thought some people well, during hips or right after hips they, they know for sure I'm going to become an alim or I want to go study higher Islamic studies. I want to go to a traditional seminary or I want to go even to university but study the Islamic sciences. Mm-hmm. I had no such feeling. It took me time. So between 16 to the time I got, by the time I was 18, so two years, um, I was just going to school. But then that year I started thinking more and more and more. And then I realized that, you know what, I also want to go into that field where I can study the Quran, learn what the Quran is saying, study fiqh, study, you know, like these other, these, there's scholars that I see. There's something beautiful about them, right? When you hear uh, an alim talking or when you hear an alim giving a talk or when you hear, uh, when you sit in a tafsir class or a tafsir session, I was like, that's that knowledge is something which is, you know, it's beautiful and amazing. And to be even really honest with you, just deep down, I didn't, I just didn't want to continue school i just felt like i was more inclined towards this so i feel like this is also a type of education right so my heart just felt like 
man, I want to go towards that ulum. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like I could have probably just continued, got my degree and done that. So that Ramadan, we were driving back for one of the, one, one night. <clears throat> I just looked at my mom and I was like, I want to go do Alim course in South Africa. So she just sort of stared at me for a minute. And then she, she actually got very emotional because it wasn't that I just wanted to do an Alim course. I had already, I thought about it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to Africa to do it. Mm-hmm. And the reason was I, I started going onto this website called Ask Imam. And I was just, that, at that time, it was like, there wasn't like <clears throat> bayans all over YouTube and scholars, like, you know, that had Twitter accounts and Facebooks. It was, the only thing I knew was there's this, there's a website called askimam.com. You can ask any question. There's a mufti who answers it. I was like, wow, this is a cool concept. Yeah. So I used to be on that website a lot. If I wasn't listening to Tilawa of Qurra, I would be just chilling on that website, looking at the type of fatwas. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, oh that, I've had that question too. Somebody else asked it. And people would send messages on there like, you know, Mufti Sab, Jazakumullah Khair, like, you know, I'm living in Iceland and this was a masla for us and you solved it for us. You helped us, you know, and stuff like that. I was like, man, that's, that's Ajib. He's sitting in Africa, but he's benefiting people in Australia, Iceland, Japan, all over the world. Mm-hmm. So I used to just see that website and I used to see on the bottom Mother Say Inamia logo there, right? Yeah. So then I went and checked out Mother's. I just started looking at Mother Say Inamia. And at the same time, my friend Mufti Sajid actually had become an alim. He finished his alim course at Elgin. Mashallah. Right. And like I said, I really didn't have any inclination. So I was happy for him. He actually went to Harper with me. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was funny. Me and him would um, <laughs> walk the hallways and I would just be wearing like normally I have like, you know, jeans and a shirt on. Uh, Mufti Sahib, mashallah, you know, he was, he'd finish his alim course and um, he would have on like a, a thobe or a kurta in a stopi and he had a, he had a much bigger beard than me. So we, we'd be walking down the hallway and we get a lot of looks, right? But it was <laughs> nice to be like, man, he doesn't care though, you know, and it was cool because we'd go, we'd walk past this one um, area in Har- at the school where all the athletes would hang out. All these, all the basketball players, mm-hmm. they would see me and Mufti Sab coming. They'd be like, "Hey, there goes Rick Ross right there." Rick, Ross, <laughs> they call it Rick. <laughs> so I don't know if everybody who's, who's going to listen to his knows who Rick Ross is, but he's like, you know, he's a singer, he's a rapper. Yeah. So they go, "Oh, there go Rick Ross," and they just laugh, and he, you know, we laugh, and be like, "Yo, what's up?" And they just it, it actually like they appreciated him just being who he was. Mm-hmm. And I used to see him, mashallah, and I just saw like, man, he's an alim, mashallah, but he's like, he's confident and he's, uh, you know, and he. He was one of the reasons I, he was with me in, in HIFS, right? But then he transferred over to do the island program. And he was very, he's still very close to me. So seeing that, I was like, his father at that time, every day would be like, when are you going to do IFTA course of South Africa? He would tell Sajid that. Mm. And he'd be like, I'm, not right now. I'm in school right now. Not right now. Every day he'd, he'd jokingly do that when I'm over on purpose. He'd be like, so did you ask Sajid when he's going over to, to do his <laughs> IFTA course? And he'd be like, you know, we'd all laugh. So I realized that his dad wanted him to go to this madrasa. Well, this Ainamia too. So that also was, okay, let me check it out. So I researched it. I looked at the website. I looked at, you know, whatever stuff they had. And I, then I just, for me, it was like, I didn't need to do more research. I know that there's there's Darulam, Zakaria, and Azadville, and Espingo Beach, and Newcastle. But then I said, I want to go here. I just made up my mind. Uh, so I just told my mom I want to go overseas and study at this particular school. She got very emotional. And she, <clears throat> she, she got home and she made salah. And she actually made... She started crying and she made a lot of dua that she's like, I know you were doing what you were doing in school, but we were concerned because we didn't see that level of interest that you had when you were memorizing Quran. So she's like, I thank Allah that you found something now that you want to go into. And, you know, that was one of the few times, not one of the few times, I've seen her cry many times, but seeing her cry out of happiness and just uh, also feeling that, man, 
my parents held in a certain feeling they had because they didn't want me to feel a certain way. But they also were like, they wanted me, they probably wanted me to be inclined towards this path, but they never wanted to push me. But when I told them that, it really like, it like it removed a burden from them. They were happy Mashallah. that you found, inshallah, this will be your calling. So I was 18 and within, um, so I spoke to Mufti Sajid. I was like, listen, man. Uh, <clears throat> he's like, yeah. He, and then he, it was it was funny because me and my mom and dad were having these discussions privately. Sajid and his father were having these discussions. And then one day he calls me before I even tell him. And he goes, I'm going to Mufti Ibrahim Desai stuff to do ifta. And I'm like, okay, cool. I didn't say anything. So after a couple of days, I called him up. I was like, yo, you know, I actually, um, I want to go there. I'm doing, I, I, I'm calling the school and, you know, I'm in the process. I'm going to go with you to do Adam course. And it was, he couldn't believe it. So we actually went together. The first, the first flight. So that it was 18, uh, I was 18. That Ramadan was um, <clears throat> a little bit close. Yeah, probably summer and past summer. It was past summer. So it was three, four months. Uh, the school year started in January. So mm -hmm. I called the school, got all the paperwork done. Uh, my father spoke to the scholar. My father actually, in the middle of the process, wanted me to go to a different madrasa. He wanted me to go to Darulum Zakaria. Mm -hmm. And he was really, he didn't want to change his mind, and I didn't want to change my mind. So we <laughs> went back and forth, back and forth. Finally, my mom just said, if he wants to go to this Darulum, he shall just khair in that. Mm -hmm. So this was around maybe September, October. So September, October, November, December, got all the paperwork. You got to get a visa, right? A student visa for South Africa. There's a whole bunch of this, this whole process of getting your visa, applying to the school. Then they ask you, okay, what have you studied before? Do you know any Arabic? Okay, you don't know any Arabic. Okay, no problem. It's a six-year program. We'll put you in the first year. They also have a, it's actually a seven-year program. There's a pre-first year, but that's for students who didn't know the English language because the mode, uh, the the language that they teach is in English. Mm -hmm. So um, I didn't have to do that, but the process was just like a lot of paperwork back and forth. So my father helped a lot in that process uh, with Mufti Kadwa, who's like, you know, head of administration there. And then January of uh, 20, 2009 was, we had our flight. So on that first flight to South Africa, it was myself, Mufti Sajid, Moana Musa, Sugupang, and Mufti Abrar, uh, all were together. Our four, the four of us flew together. Two, one, Mufti Moana Musa was going for his final year of Adam course. Mm -hmm. Mufti Sajid was going for his IFTA two-year program. Same with Mufti Abrar. And Mufti Asubumar was already there. So the four of us flew there. I was like the younger guy. <laughs> when, when, they, when we got there... <clears throat> Everybody was like, oh, man, these, these American guys are here. Everybody was like, they're all Ifta guys. <laughs> I was a first-year guy. <laughs> Nobody was cared about me. They're like, we were sitting in the mushroom. I remember when we first got there and getting, to, first of all, just landing in South Africa was like, I can just talk about that for like an hour, right? Just, it's like, where am I? You know, this new new country, new continent, new people, uh, you know. But one thing I would say is like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, through me studying the deen, showed me so many different places of the world. Every year when I was traveling back and forth from South Africa, I always had a layover in a different country. Mm -hmm. I was able to just go out for a little bit and see it. And I was like, that's all about of my studies. Or else I, I'm not going to sit there and most of, maybe go to Ireland or go to Abu Dhabi or Dubai. But because of my studies, I feel like I had the opportunity. But landing in South Africa was just, you know, it was just, wow. It's like the first time I'd seen a country besides Canada, America, or India, right? <laughs> so, and my perception was, 
unfortunately, you know, it's this isn't the way that you know South Africans get mad when people they'll have Americans like, so do you guys have lions and tigers walking around and they get upset about that? Like, come on, are you serious? Like, you know, you guys, you guys pride yourself on being in this educated nation and like, you know, the best place for higher education. How could you ask us that? But when I got there too, I was really impressed with the infrastructure of the country. Right? It was just like, I don't know, myself too. I was like, I, I, I knew it wasn't going to be like a jungle. But as advanced as it was, or uh, um, the infrastructure was very nice, mashallah. But just landing there, getting to the Darulum, that drive, I always remember that drive. Because our school is located like in a valley, which mm -hmm. is surrounded by all mountains, right? It's a purposely had the school. It's like, it's a suburb called Camperdown, and it's like 30 to 40 minutes away from Durban City. And it's very beautiful. It's like fresh air. It gets very foggy there, and it's surrounded by all mountains. Sure. So that was the school. So for getting to the school... Uh, meeting people, you just saw like students from uh, Asian, Filipino students, uh, kids from Australia, Germany. There was 35 countries represented in our school. So, but when I first got there, everyone was like, oh, Moana Musa's in final year. Mufti Saj is doing ifta, Mufti Abrar. And then yeah, he's in first year. <laughs> so everybody <laughs> would just skip me and just sit with them and just talk to them and be in interested. But I remember that was, that was pretty funny. But because these guys, are, Mufti Saji was my friend, I was able to spend a lot of time with these. I saw, I got to know the Ifta guys in first year, which is like rare. Yeah. Right? So usually first year guys stay with first year guys, but they would see me like, why? They would be like, well, how do you go into the Ifta room? I was like, yeah, I'm just friends with Mufti Sajid. You know, he's my friend. So yeah, the whole experience was just, honestly, that place is what molded me. That place is anything that I have good in this life. I, even to the even for me getting married, my wife, now I have a child. Mashallah. Any barakah that I have in my life, I tell people it's because of that place that I spent Mashallah. there for six years. Mashallah. So, so how was day one? Now you're walking in with a couple of friends. Yeah. Right. You know, you know some people, but yeah. they're in different different years. Yes. Yes. You, you're in, you're in first year. Yeah. Mamusa is doing his dora. Dora. Yeah. The rest of them are in ifta. ifta yeah. They're the they're the top dogs. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mashallah. Because in Madrasa, there's like the hierarchy. The dora guys, the ifta guys, like everybody respects them. Mashallah, <laughs> Molanas, and especially in South Africa, I noticed because when I was studying in Elgin, it was just hips program, and mm -hmm. the alim course had just started. Over there, this Madrasa has been running for like thirty years. Right. Mashallah. So in most daru ulums there. Sort of like when you're studying there, the guys are on the higher years. Like everyone respects them. They're always, they're almost alim. They've mm -hmm. gone through the process. I was just, I'm just a newbie, right? First year guys like, yeah, he's in first year. It doesn't matter if you're 40, you're in first year, <laughs> right? And their schedule is way different than mine too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I knew them, but again, completely different area where I'm sleeping. Uh, for the first few days, I slept with them. Then they're like, you're in first year. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> back to reality, you know, like this is your room. Um, but then I had to just uh, make friends with uh, the people. But to be honest with you, you know, I'm not ashamed to say this. That's when I landed there. The first couple of nights, I felt like I teared up, mm -hmm. right? If I felt there was, I just there was a sense of loneliness and how am I going to do this for six years? That mm -hmm. hit me, right? And you didn't really think about that because before you were hyped. Yeah. You had this sense, you have adrenaline, you're just like, I'm going to study. SubhanAllah, I'm going to become an alim. They, I, I checked the avabs, they have a qira'a program, I'm going to become a proper sabah qadi, and this and that. But then when you're actually there, you're like, I have to go through this grind for six years? That is very difficult mentally. Mm -hmm. You know, the first the first six months, my stomach was messed up because of the diet, right? So you're, you're, you're physically just not right. Mm -hmm. um, family is a afterthought now forget weekends subhanallah you're, yeah. you're in chicago illinois i'm in durban south africa no family um knowing how sad my mother was when i left 
you know, because mm-hmm. I was 18 and uh, my brothers and sisters joke around. She's like, they would say like, when you left every other day, your mom, my mom would just stare at my room and then be like, I wonder if Alberto, like, what's he doing? You know, but we had to hear that every day, man. What's up with you? You know, <laughs> but uh, it, honestly, the, the most difficult time thing was to leave my family. Uh, and I know I was older, but I was still 18. So mm-hmm. I mean, mashallah, 18 year old, when you're 18, you should be mature. There's a level, of, but leaving your family and going to a different continent and different place. And now it's not even like, okay, in Elgin, it's the same culture though, mm-hmm. right? You're all Americans. I'm with people with completely different mindset, background, culture. Sometimes I'm saying, I'm speaking to them. They're not understanding what I'm saying, learning about the current, like currency. Uh, if I get sick, where do I go? Um, if I want to speak to somebody, where do I go? There's, it, was, it was a much bigger school. So everything was on a much bigger scale. They had a huge library. I didn't know. I'd never had a mother with a li- like that type of library. Bookstore. So if you want to go to the library, you have to talk to these scholars. If you want to discuss something about uh, your dormitory situation, these scholars. If you want to talk to the dean of academics, that's this scholar. It's not just one person running everything. Yeah. So it was just a lot just hits you. Right. And I guess that's common to when you go to a new school, maybe university. Mm-hmm. But the Darul Ulum experience is like, you know, there I feel like the concept of mujahada is part of you becoming trying to become an alim. Uh it's 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 part of the process. And I think that's what makes the process difficult, but it's it, it's what also makes it beautiful, right? In the end. But it's beautiful now when I sit here and talk to you about it. Going through it, the first year was very tough because I had no background in Arabic. Mm-hmm. Um, that was difficult for me. I couldn't write any Arabic, right? All I, I just memorized Quran. So I noticed some of the, so in first year, we had like 35 kids. Um, some of them, mashallah, writing well, you know, learning how to, the first couple of years is just focusing on Arabic. Yeah. So I had zero background. So for me to get into that was very, very difficult. Learning sarf, nahu, grammar, um, and just basic things like writing my name in Arabic took me time. And I was mm. afraid, like, I'm going to fall behind. I can't do this. So I, my impression was initially was, man, Alam course is hard. Mm-hmm. This is difficult because you have to learn like a new language. Yeah. Right? And I was like, can I do this? It's like, if it's in English, I know the English, the mode of Ta'ali, meaning the, the lecture is given in English, but you're learning Arabic in uh, through English. Yeah. So he's teaching you English with English to Arabic. Alhamdulillah, I knew English. Some students didn't even know English. So they're trying to learn English so that they can, through English, learn Arabic. Subhanallah. So there were a lot of challenges. To be honest with you, that first year was very hard mentally, um, just missing home. But, you know, one of my teachers one time, he saw me, he just said, you know, it's okay, inshallah. You know, after uh, with every difficulty, there's ease. You got to hang in there, you know. So, and one, I am one, Ormer, who was my friend, he came from Seattle. You know, he's a very, very close friend of mine now. He came like six months late and he, he was a little older. He was like 24. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was coming, he talked to a scholar and one scholar told him that the one advice I'll give you is if you're going overseas to study in these type of places or any Darulum, he's like, you got to be a little thick skin. You know, mm. make sure you, you have to be, try, you know, be as tough as you can because certain things can happen. Certain things will be said to you that maybe for you and your culture are not acceptable or are deemed uh, not normal. But over there, they're going to be fine. Yeah. So you can't go there and try to change someone else's culture. You have to go and adapt. Mm-hmm. So make sure you're, you're thick-skinned because if you're not, you're not going to make it, you know? And that's one thing I was like, I, I always tell students that too. It's like, I'm not saying that the time you go into the time you leave, you're going to be tortured, mm-hmm. but you have to be strong mentally Definitely. to be able to study, but at the same time, adapt to it. It's more about adaption to a new culture and to a new country. SubhanAllah. So your first year, you're facing all these difficulties. At what point, or was it after your first year where you got a little bit more comfortable where you were like, you know, I'm going to do this? Honestly, I didn't feel like that till the end of, till, uh, 
until I was starting the fourth year course, Smart. right? So it's a six-year program, seven years, right? Um, if you add Idadia, but without Idadia, it's six years. So when I was starting fourth year, so three years, I I made, th- I, so I, I would say that I got through three years, alhamdulillah, Shana. right? But when I was starting fourth year, when you opened up Jalalain, like, and you're like, oh, now we're going to study tafsir. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to do hidayah. We're going to do some real fiqh. Because you come into Alim course thinking you're gonna, it's, you you fantasize about, oh, I'm tafsir, I'm gonna do tafsir, I'm gonna learn, I'm gonna learn this, I'm gonna learn that. <laughs> no, when you go there, you're gonna learn Arabic first, right? Yeah. And that's more of a grind. It's not like something. Some people, I, yeah, some of my friends love Nahu, right? Mm-hmm. That wasn't really my thing, but you have to do it, right, to learn Arabic grammar for you to understand the classical texts. Um, but when you started doing those kitabs and those books, and you realize now that now you're really getting into like learning some of those uh, some books of Hanafi fiqh, uh, you're learning uh, you know aqidah, you're learning tafsir, you're learning usul, the different principles of the different Islamic sciences, and all your books are now Arabic now. No more, there's no English at all. Sure. That's when I was like, Subhanallah, this is what all that all that difficulty, whether it be academically or getting used to the madrasa. Uh, you might be saying, well, three years, it took you three years to get used to a place. No, you get used to it. But you can get used to a place, but being used to it and then also being 100% comfortable are yeah. two different things. I really felt that comfort coming in like the end of third year because in the middle of my alam course, I actually left. I actually told, I convinced my parents that, man, in the in my second year that this is very hard. Let me come back to Chicago and study. Mm-hmm. They didn't think it was a good idea because they knew, and there, that's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. I'm sure some of the scholars that you interviewed uh, or talked to are, com- did all their studies locally. Mm-hmm. And they're phenomenal scholars, much more knowledgeable than me and um, extremely brilliant. But for me personally, I needed to be out of my home environment and element. I mean, I, in plain words, I needed to be out of Chicago. Yeah. If I'm in Chicago and I have access to a car, my parents knew that it's going to be difficult for you to study. So when I told them that I want to come back and study, my mom said yes. My father was against it because he knew me. As did my mother, but my mother's heart was it was difficult for her to say. Yeah. So I actually came back for like five months in the middle to study uh, in Chicago because I told my parents, you know, I can't make it here. I'll just finish my alim course in Chicago. So in second year, I actually, I left the madrasa. Oh, I, wow. I, told my, I made salam to my ustaz. I said, I'm going back. I'm, I can't, I know I'm going to go home and study. Some of them were, especially my principal, they were disappointed, mm-hmm. right? But they said, it's, you know, it's your choice, you know, inshallah, good luck to you. When I came back here for five months, that five months was probably the most difficult five months of my life because the <clears throat> the way I was, I should have been studying, I wasn't studying. Uh, my mind wasn't really in tune to how I was in South Africa. Way too many distractions. And because of uh, the lack of effort and just heart that I had shown when I first went there, my parents saw that and that that really bothered them. And I think it really strained, it, it caused a strain in our family life. To which one day I woke up, like five months after going through that, I you know, I woke up and I emailed my my principal, my vice principal in South Africa. I told him, I want to come back. I, I really want to come back. Will you accept me? I'm willing to do whatever it takes to come back. I've been studying these books here, but I just don't, I don't, I'm not feeling the same way because it's not, it has nothing to do with my teachers here or the ustads or kitabs. I need to be, Mm-hmm. I need to be away from home. And so he just emailed me one sentence. He just said, you were our student once and you always will be our student. We'll take you back gladly. Mashallah. Inshallah. So when I, to- I think when I told my mom and dad that I'm going back, was <laughs> I think they were way happier than when I first went. Mashallah. Yeah. That's when I think my father even cried. And that doesn't, you know, my father is very, he's a very emotional person, mashallah, mashallah. Right? but very soft-hearted person. But I think uh, seeing their happiness, 
I then I then I told myself that now I'm going back. I'm gonna finish it, inshallah. inshallah. So me getting a second chance of going back to the mother stuff. But then when I went back, uh, the vice principal was like, "Fine." I sat down with the the dean of academics, Moana Harun Sahib. He said, "Look, I'll be very clear with you. You have four months, and we have the final year exams because we have quarter exam, mid year exam, and then the end of the year exam is all the books that you've studied, all the material examinations mm. on them." He's like, "Either you guys pass them." You go on to the next year, or you if you don't pass, you have to repeat the whole year. Smart. So th- those four months were some of the hardest I've studied. Like I, I remember doing like Hidayat and Nahu. I like literally had to like me- I memorized the whole book because <laughs> we had oral exams and you know and they and there were some fifth books that they, we were do they they were doing in South Africa that I had left and came to Chicago and we weren't studying them here, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I had to catch up on those, right? Like Shadal Gakaya. I had no didn't was didn't do it at all, and seven months, six months I passed. So I worked. It forced me to study extremely hard. Alhamdulillah, passed the exams, and then Asham. I think when I got into third year, and the third year sort of flowed, Asham. and then towards the middle and end of third year was when I really like, inshallah, I can do this. You know, Asham. got excited about it. But that I I, I needed that. Um, yeah, I needed that. I don't I don't know if it was a shaitan or whatever it may be. I needed that uh, that little jolt in the middle. Mm-hmm. Of going home and seeing what would happen if I came home and to go back and to really I think that made me really focused. When I went back, it got me really focused in my studies. And and also fourth year was when we started Qira'ah. So it, my my level, my enthusiasm was just because we do tajid for beginners and you do Fawaid and Makiya and then you do uh Jazriya and Jami al Waqf. These are four books you do that all students have to do. Mm-hmm. After that, the Shatubiya text. Is this text that you study if you want to become a Qadi and learn the seven different variant readings? But you have to do the kitab, only those who want to do qiraat then do implement it into the Quran and do ijra, meaning recite the whole Quran. Mm-hmm. So then when we started that in fourth year, that was that really got me excited because that was my that was still my passion. Mashallah. So that started in fourth year, alhamdulillah. So I would say fourth year is when I really um was energized and felt like I can do this, you know? MashaAllah. So for the Qur'an program in your madrasa, does Anyone who wants to do it get accepted? What are the prerequisites for it? The, uh, the prerequisites are pretty much you have to do the first four books I mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Tajweed for Beginners, which I, I teach now, right, in the States, is written by a South African Qadi, Rahimahullah, my teacher's teacher. No. Uh, he was the head Qadi of the Madrasa Azadville. He passed away. So he wrote his book. It's 80 pages, very good book. I always tell those who are a Hafiz of Quran that if you're a Hafiz of Quran, take this kitab and just know this book. Mm-hmm. That's sufficient for you in Riwayah Hafsfik. Every Hafiz of Quran should know that book. So that was the first book. And then you do uh, Jami' al Waqf is a book uh, in Tajweed. And then Fawaid al Makiya is in Urdu, another book in Tajweed. And then the famous book, Muqaddama uh, of Imam Jazari, Rahimahullah. Those four books you have to do before you get into Shatubiyya. Mm-hmm. But everyone is required to do those four books, but then you don't have to do more after that. After that, is it's a the qira'ah basically is an elective course, just like if someone wants to do a taqassus, a, speci- a specialty, or study more in detail tafsir, they do taqassus, uh, you know, in tafsir, or they do if you want to do more in fiqh, you'll go into the ifta program. Mm-hmm. So similarly, not everyone is has to do qira'ah, but only those who elect to do it. Mashallah. So you're you're telling me that. Right when you jumped into the Qur'an program, that's when it just sparked. Was it sparked? It? I mean, half it was, yeah, it sparked my enthusiasm because I was like, mm-hmm. yes, I've been waiting this for this for years. Like, you know, like I want, I wanted to become a Qadi in the sense of, I just use that term, I'm not, you know, that term of Qadi, meaning I wanted to actually study the science mm-hmm. properly, right? And learn the kitabs of Qira'ah and Tajweed and not just be someone who maybe, 
Qari, that term, it's, it's used a lot and sometimes, many times it's, it's misused. And so I wanted to actually give, give it its due right and justice, meaning study properly sure. uh, and learn just the books of Qira. Because becoming a Qari is not just having a beautiful voice or uh, being able to recite nicely or you put up a video with a nice presentation. No, the Qura are those who actually study that science you know, in detail, right? Because sometimes it's it's a sense, <clears throat> some Qur'an I've spoken to, they, they might feel disrespected because I'm not going to disrespect any other field or any other science by having minimal knowledge of it and claiming to know it properly. Absolutely. Right? So that applies to the, the science of Qur'an, whereas sometimes we might give the platform of Qari to someone where they're not actually someone who has formally studied the kitabs of Qur'an. So I was like, now I have this opportunity. I want to do it, inshallah. I want to not just, you know, not just be someone a beautiful voice. So he's a qari. You know, actually, the kid. So then, when I started studying qara, you realize like this field is so vast, mm -hmm. and there's so much to it, right? You had no idea. So yeah, so that really was much like got me enthusiastic. So that the qara, of course, is took many, uh, you know, more than one year also. Mashallah. How how long did it take? Was it simultaneous? I mean, once you get to Shatubiyah, it took fourth year, fifth year, and then I did Ashara. Sughra, so it took three years. And the Asham. last year, you had to take time out of class. So we'd go, I'd go like in <clears throat> certain times in the evening and sit with the Ustad. So I finished Sabah after fifth year. And then I did Ashara Sughra in the last year. MashaAllah, yeah, MashaAllah. The 10 varieties. But then there's Kubra. I haven't done Kubra. Uh, what are the, what's the difference between Sughra and Kubra? So Sughra is basically, there's seven variant readings, right? Sabah. And then there's three that are added to that after. So that the, they, they call that Ashara, Kubra. And then after you do those, there's three Imams in that reading. Once you do that, that's 10 different Imams. But then there's, there's some more Imams and that's Ashara, Kubra. So you can study those Imams also. Uh, so I didn't do Kubra, but I went up to Sughra. MashaAllah. Yeah. So walking into the Qur'an program, was it everything you ever imagined? Yes, it was, but it was, and it was, and it wasn't, because <laughs> it was what I imagined, but it was also, it was much more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. You know, it, for just, for instance, the book of Shatubi, I was like, I was like, why, you know, the Musannif, rahimahullah, wrote the book, did he have to do it in poetry form, you know? <laughs> You're trying to take all these rules of Qira'a from poetry. So it was everything that I expected as far as learning the nuances, but it was difficult too. And then doing the whole Qur'an in the seven Qira'a was uh, obviously um, with your Ustad doing Ijra'a, that was very, um, mashallah, had difficulty in the beginning, but once you get a hang of it, it's, it's, it's beautiful, right? Mashallah. Um, but yeah, it was, alhamdulillah. It was something that I, I wanted to do. So it took fourth year, fifth year, and then six, towards all of sixth year, right? So three, you could say four years to completely do all the books, starting from the elementary level mm -hmm. to finish that program. MashaAllah. So you're in South Africa. Um, a lot of the times that, I mean, the first thought that comes to a lot of people's mind is, is it safe? Okay, can you speak a little bit about that? How was the student life over there in your mother's house? I mean, alhamdulillah, look, I'll, I'll put it like this. Uh, if you look at it from a statistical standpoint, mm -hmm. South Africa is has a high crime rate, right? That we can't, we're not gonna we can't jump around that's a fact <laughs> a fact is a fact right yeah. i know we live in a world of fake news and alternative facts but that's a fact but to be honest like in my six years alhamdulillah i never i i never had any violent incident or i never had i think there was once where i lost i misplaced my wallet mm -hmm. and if i just leave my wallet anywhere it's my fault it got somebody took my wallet that was it is crime there is it prevalent yes it is like most of the the houses that you'll see they have um 
the top-notch security and you have like gates in the front yards and you have fences and people have uh, secure, secure, private security is a huge business. It's actually a multi-million, multi-billion dollar business, but it's one of the biggest places where private security is a big business is in South Africa because mm-hmm. of the need for, uh, you know, not just... The re- not just having reliance on your local police force, but you need to take matters into your own hands. So private security, private contractors are huge. So there is crime, but it's like this. I used to see, people used to come up to me and be like, where are you from? I'm from the United States. Where in the United States? Chicago. Oh man, Chicago's crazy. Mob town, right? It's, it must be wild. Um, I mean, yeah, there's certain areas. I mean, yeah, you know, like, no, man, there's probably sh- like, how many shootouts have you been in? Or have you, how many, ga- relax, you know, like, so I would tell them, and where do they get this information from? The news, the media, because all they're seeing is Chicago. The the death toll or the the murder rate is the highest in the United States, right? You know, you have cities like Chicago or Baltimore, et cetera, et cetera. So somebody from overseas sees that and they believe that Chicago is probably crazy too. Does Chicago have crime statistically? Absolutely. But uh, uh, it also depends demographically where you're living, right? So I would give the same example for South Africans. Is there crime? Yes. Now, the only difference is that crime can... Crime takes place, I feel like, anywhere there, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's a good area or bad area. But it's not like every single day you walk out of the gates of the mother cell whenever you left, uh, like, you know, you, you're gonna you're susceptible to being shot or, like, there's danger. There's danger. There is danger. But you just have to be uh, aware and smart, you know, and just basically, you know, you're not going to just leave your stuff in a random place or when you're – make sure you're going where – you're, where, where are you going to? Where are you traveling? If Especially if you're a foreigner. People can maybe sometimes pick up on that kind of stuff. So the more I live there, I realize, okay, when I'm taking a taxi, where where do I got to sit? Who do I got to talk to? Um, where do I, be very direct of where I want to go. Mm-hmm. Where do I keep my wallet? What kind of AT, – what ATMs am I going to go to? What ATMs I'm not – so that stuff you pick up. So you have to have a little bit of street smarts and just yeah. – you No, know, you can't just be completely just living in a, you know, just, oh, this – so, yes, yeah, so you take precaution. But at the same time, I, I I was there for six years, alhamdulillah, and I didn't have any violent incidents. Does Has it happened to other students or other people? Absolutely, it, it happens. Is there a high crime rate there? Yes, it is. But it's also one of the most beautiful countries I've been to, mashallah. mashallah. Right? So – it's a question where I just can't give you a yes or no answer. Yes, oh, yeah. if I just said yes, there's a high crime rate. I think it wouldn't be me giving doing justice to that country. So you have to look at the whole picture, right? And I it's sort of like the example of Chicago. I gave that's you. a perfect example, yeah, man. Because okay? <laughs> I remember my classmate. He was from Johannesburg. He's like, man, it's a mob town, right? I was like, yeah, it's Gabon, mob town, all that. But it's like, look, you have to understand something. Like, and I explained it to him, and he's like, well. Yeah, he's like, when people talk about South Africa, similar, right? There mm-hmm. is crime. And a lot of the crime is, uh, obvi- the thing is, yes, there is, v- the thing is that the crime that does happen is violent crime. Um, so, but the thing is, and the thing is, most people, their houses are way more fortified than our houses. Mm-hmm. That's a big difference. The fortification of the houses, security, fences, cameras, dogs, way more than here, for sure. Mm. Yes. So that's something that the, the people are there, uh, if you live there, then you get accustomed to it and you realize this is something I have to deal with, right? Yeah. So, like, uh, chilling outside at night uh, or people out, uh, it's not as common because people understand at night stuff can happen. Right? Yeah. So, definitely. is there, there are, there's, you just have to be, like I said, when you go somewhere like that, you have to understand the culture. You have mm-hmm. to be, uh, um, figure out, you know, what are, what are things you can do, what you can do. And then, inshallah, after that, it's, it's, um, 
you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a protector, right? Allah is the best of protectors. So that's how I would describe it. I wouldn't just blanketly say it's crime and it's crazy, mm -hmm. you know? So. Yes, mashallah. Um, how was the braai over there? The braai, yeah. So for those who don't know, braai means barbecue, but mm -hmm. they use the word braai. Yeah. But I would say it's it's some of the best, mashallah. So honestly, like, that was one of the things I had no idea. Like South Africans are good at barbecuing. It's like, and I've, I've actually looked, for it on like YouTube and stuff. So now it's like, okay, there's all these bri videos. But yeah. if you go to any other country, I'm not sure if people know what that even means or 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 if South Africans are even known for their barbecuing skills. But I think what it is is the halal food circuit there is amazing. Mashallah. You can get any type of food at any time uh, halal, right? Uh, so <clears throat> when it comes to barbecuing, the stuff that maybe I didn't really have I don't remember having access to like T-bone steaks and now, now mashallah we do right mm -hmm. but T-bone steaks and then chops and then you have like hot dogs and they call them wars and all these things is like you can, you can just walk into any store like a Jewel Osco or uh, you know any place where you want to buy meat and just this halal meat mashallah. readily available it's like proper butcheries so that's one thing is the the accessibility and availability of halal food is amazing there Mashallah. You know, like there's so many beautiful things to that country, subhanAllah. I would I there's thoughts there's times where I tell my wife like that I would I would definitely just consider one day just moving there, you know, because <laughs> and because the the Islamic environment there is very, you know, mashallah strong. Uh you already know there's there's a lot of Islamic institutions there. Mashallah. Uh, Muslims have been there, Muslims migrated there. Most of them, most of the so you have it's a very diverse country. Uh the the uh, the Muslims <clears throat> So that I spend time with a lot of them are Gujarati, right, background. But then you have Muslims of uh, Malaysian backgrounds. So you call them Cape Malay Muslims, right? So they're mm -hmm. they're Muslims in Cape Town who are like they have Malaysian blood, and they're and they're uh, throughout the generations they married into different cultures, right? Mm -hmm. So Cape Malay. Then you have the local African Muslims, um, but the Gujarati Muslims they migrated there in like the the forties, fifties, and they came via ship. Right for training routes, mm -hmm. um, and then they moved there, and they saw that this land, there, you know, there's a lot of opportunity here, and most of them came and they started business ventures. So oh, most sure. of the South African Muslim community is big in the in the in in business, right? So they're they're into uh, they're they're prominent businessmen, and I think a lot of that money is funneled towards these Islamic institutions, Subhanallah. So you have these big institutions running through the generosity of these uh, Muslim businessmen, Allah. but. But the, the biggest focus they had is when they came in the 50s is we're going to start our business. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is we got to establish a, a masjid. And third is a madrasa. That was their focus. Now, if they didn't have number two and number three, you would not have deen in South Africa like you have it today. Mm -hmm. That's one reason I feel like the deen is there so strong. And the second reason I would say is a lot of the elders from the subcontinent visited South Africa in the in the mid and early 1900s, mm -hmm. and they got so there was barakah that like Sheikh Zakaria, rahimahullah, Ali Siddiq, you know Shah Abdul Haqsab, rahimahullah, great scholars from India and Pakistan. They 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 visited South Africa repeatedly, and through that I think the barakat and their duas, Deen spread there too. So those are two I think huge factors why, you know, people go from all over the world to study there. But uh, mashallah, they had the sense that, look, we want to establish ourselves as a strong financial business community. But right after that, we have to make sure our future generations are protected. We got to establish the masajid and we got to establish the madaris. Mashallah, so now mashallah. you have madrasas there from the, the 70s. Mashallah, right? Newcastle Newcastle was established in 19, I, I could be wrong with the exact year, 72, the midst in the 70s. So Allahu. years, right? Darulum Zakaria, 80s, Azad, Armadasa, early 90s. Mm -hmm. So they had that fikr, subhanAllah, you know, so 
we, we but alhamdulillah we also have our institutions coming up here now too right this is what they also always used to tell us study here go back and now do you know establish those kind of things in your homelands you know mm-hmm. mashallah so how was it going into your final year final year was uh, i <laughs> i i told my my wife and my friends and whoever <clears throat> that final year was one of the best years of my life mm-hmm. right it was subhanallah the experience i had yes cuz like you not, one is one is uh the boarding madrasa hierarchy you finally reached dora right <laughs> <laughs> not that it, but i'm just mentioning but then it's that journey it's like in fifth year is when you see the light at the end of the tunnel mm-hmm. six years is just mentally is difficult honestly yeah. it's just like first year you're 18 you're like how am i and that's that's the only thing i would mention to my mom over and over and over again how am i going to get to six years how am i going to do six and she was like don't think about it don't think about it my sister the same thing you know and wallahi if it wasn't for my mom my dad um <clears throat> my brothers and sisters i wouldn't be able to have done it you know and i always tell people like man your friends are your friends love your friends you know and especially your friends who are saleh but the people who will never ever ever uh, you know leave your back or they always they will always support you as your family so there were times where those 6 years the people who were consistently in my life were those people my mom and dad and my brothers and sisters Mashallah. i can say you know with how that they were the only ones that for that 6 year period were with me the whole time Whenever I felt down, whenever I felt alone, whenever I, f- I needed support, whenever I needed help, they mm-hmm. always were there. I would not be sitting, I would not be teaching in Libertyville. I would not be, you know, I wouldn't have four hufas finish the Quran and with me and teaching and all, all this stuff without them. They get more credit than even myself. You know, and I feel like they were, they supported me through those times from the age of 18 to 25. Mashallah. My father, he said, you don't worry about nothing, study. My mom said, just study. You know, my sister, she was very supportive of me. She, um, you know, there was times where I needed to just talk to her about personal issues I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. She was always there, subhanAllah, you know. And Mashallah. me staying there made my relationship with my family much better, Mashallah. much closer. I feel like uh, I wouldn't have been as close to my family if I had not gone overseas to study. Mashallah. For sure. But yeah, go, the Dora year was just phenomenal as far as the whole year is hadith. Mashallah. And, you know, day and night is hadith. And, and for me, hadith was... Like if I was to continue studying, I would probably, I would have loved to study hadith further. Uh, mm-hmm. Not that I, you know, and most people, a lot of people would like to go into fiqh and do ifta, but I would have done hadith. And my, my shaykh hadith was my, who was my teacher and my, he's still my mentor, you know, Hafidhullah Mu'ala Muhammad Abbas Umar. Um, shaykh hadith of the mother, so, you know, uh, and Mu'ana Zakaria and Mufti Kadwa. And I, the list goes on and on, Mu'ana Ilyas. Um, I, you know, I had just amazing teachers, you know, I, I, and Qari Nazir and Qari Ismail, the two teachers who charged me qira'ah. You know, I make dua for them every single day Mashallah. and I still have contact with them and um, just that last year of just day and night hadith even at night so Dora is such that you have your normal hours of mother so 8 to 12 and then Dhuhr Khaylullah uh, lunch and then you have class Asr. but then in Dora you also you have a special class after Maghrib only mm. for Dora boys because you want you have so many hadith to go to right because yeah. you do all the six major collections so um spending time with them and then a lot of you we I got to ask a lot of personal life questions that year you know, like Shana. now that I'm, I'm, cause now he realized like this, this, this place, which was like my fort, my khila, my, like f- this fortification, it was actually, is actually a place of safety for me too. I'm Shana. leaving the safety net now. I'm yeah. leaving this place where any problem I have, I used to go stay at the feet of my teachers. I Shana. need help. And they always were able to help me. They're not going to be there anymore. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. So th- part of me used to be sad. Like I'm, this is it. This is the last year. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to see my ustad's face every single day. 
and that uh you know so i i try to soak up as much as i can about life you know and they gave us so much like advice besides just teaching us hadith and besides teaching us the sciences of islam about just life how to conduct yourself as an alim in the community how to uh how to maximize your efforts you know how to live with your parents uh, uh, a marriage advice and like anything you know so that last year was like the last year was one year that you probably didn't I didn't want to end I wanted to continue Ashanda. right but it was subhanallah those experiences are uh I, for me that was the best year of my life like honestly and it's uh, those years and, and the thing is that you know once two things man doesn't value according to Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam is until they're gone in the hadith is one is <clears throat> free time that you had one is good health right so once time is gone it's finished you know you can, all you can do is reminisce and think about it so um so last year we had a reunion, uh, you know, uh, a 25-year reunion of the madrasa. So going back last year and just seeing people I hadn't seen for years, seeing my ustaz was very emotional. For me, I treated that one week like a, uh, like people go to a, a khanka to mm -hmm. go to for spiritual reformation. That one week was like a spiritual reformation for me. Because when we when we're doing work in the community here, we deal with so many things, mm -hmm. right? And people sometimes it's hard for me to even uh, make other people understand the type of situations that I have to deal with, the mental strain at times and grinding. Don't get me wrong, everyone has difficulty in their professions. Mm -hmm. Like the other day, I, I I had to go to a um <clears throat> a ghusl of a thirty one year old. Um, who had passed away who I knew from a very young age I lost contact with him in the middle mm -hmm. 31 years of age um, and he had died very tragically and just and then his brother who I hadn't spoken to for like 15 years told me I know I haven't had contact with you man but right now I need you for the ghusl so when Allah. I when me and my another one of my friends Hafiz Hashman we showed up for the ghusl it was just three people mm -hmm. right and it was very low key only 10 people the whole this was two this is literally two days ago that whole process of doing the janazah for someone who passed away, 31-year-old, seeing the mother, seeing the father, and then he didn't just pass away. In a, you know, he was someone who was dealing with you know particular issues in his life, mm -hmm. and you know, so it was it was difficult for him at the end of his life. Uh, that kind of stuff it was like we we deal with that stuff all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Janazas and then uh, disputes in the community. Not to mention forty uh, teaching is forty hours a week. That's I have to do that for obviously that's my, you know, like my nine to five. Yeah. But with that, we have to do community work. So going there for that one week last year and just sharing with them what I'm doing and then them being very happy, like, yes, we're so happy that you're doing khidmat of deen. That's all. Mashallah. And then them giving us du'as and then listening to, there was it was a three-day retreat of just all of our teachers with other outside scholars talking. It was so beautiful. And like, honestly, um, it, rejuven it rejuvenated me. It revitalized me. It made me come, when I flew back to Chicago, I was ready to go. You know? So now I told my teachers, like, why can't we have this every year? For me, because I treated it like a retreat. Yeah. Uh, and for me, un unless I go back there, I can't get that feeling. There's mm -hmm. no other place. And for you, wherever you studied, when you go back, you'll get that feeling. Mm -hmm. For That's why everybody feels that they're Dar Ulum and they're Ustads. You have to always feel like they're the best, mm -hmm. right? You, you respect everybody, but you have to have the feeling that my Ustads and my Dar Ulum, where I got knowledge from, they're the best for me. Right. And so, you know, just Dora in general was amazing. And then studying and then the schedule and then hadith. You know, what you can't beat the words of Qala uh, Rasulullah day, day and night, day and night. You know, the ruhaniyat that, that creates, we're nothing. You know, when we hear the, the, um, <clears throat> some of the, Stories of the Akabir, the senior scholars, you know, some of them, you know, they would not they would not sit in any hadith without wudu. They would not miss one dars of hadith without wudu, or they were 
punctual with the hajjud every single night. You know, what I mean? and I saw some of my classmates doing these things. This isn't stories. We have stories from uh, previous generations, but I also saw my, some of my classmates engage in this. I saw some classmates making one khatam of Quran every week. Allah. Right? Uh, because of the love they have. So that motivated me. Like I'm no, I'm nowhere near any of these people, mm-hmm. but at least I'm in this company, right? So you, like, it's just, it's beautiful, you know? Like, so that's why last year was, it reminded me, it gave me a small glimpse of that daughter year and just mother's in general, and I missed it. Because when you're there, you, I mean, anyone that's gone to mother's side, they say the same thing. When you're there, there's times where you just want to get out. Mm-hmm. But you miss it like nothing else because it, it makes you who you are. For me, everything I am today and everything uh, you know, I will do, inshallah, is from the du'as of my parents and I feel my teachers and that institution. So it doesn't matter what I do, what I give back to them, This it, 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 it will help in comparison to what they gave me. Definitely, mashallah. How was graduation? Graduation was amazing because <clears throat> my family came for the graduation. Mashallah. And uh, my mother was not there for my hips graduation. So my mother came for this graduation. My, uh, my whole family was there. So... Um, Seeing them there was emotional for me because six years of their support, six years of um, them just unconditionally loving and supporting me. And then that, I was more happy for my mom to be Mashallah. able to see me graduate because that was something that she would have been, she deserved that, I feel like, as a mother, right? I, I mean, I don't consider, you know, like, yes, I graduated, of course. I'm not going to go around telling everybody. I'm, you know, I know my teachers are real alims. Mm-hmm. Those are people who are knowledgeable. But I, alhamdulillah, was able to go through that course. Um, just sitting there, the dastarmandi, hearing um, uh, the different teachers speak, hearing the guests, and then doing the Khatna Bukhari, listening to Mufti Saluji, Hafidahullah talking. He was the principal of Talimuddin. And then um, <clears throat> hearing, um, I believe it was the principal of Azarville. Um, forgetting his name right now. Mahfuzur Rahman. No, he's a Sheikh of Hadith. The principal is Mona Abdul Hamid Saab. So he 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 gave a talk. It was just like every moment of, of that I can remember. I remember seeing my father, and then I had to recite that day because we were making khatam of Ashara. And then I recited some. Uh, I had to recite twice. It was just everything about that day. And then finishing, it was like the weather was perfect. You know, Mashallah. like I'm, I, I'm making a story because for me, honestly, it was like a a story. You know, like a storybook. Or story tale type finish, um, and for so for me it was beautiful. And most importantly, was my family was there, Mashallah. right? And, and then meeting my mother after, because she missed my hips graduation. That and mm-hmm. that really bothered her. So I was like, you have to come for this one. And then my father and my father, um, for him meeting my asadis, I was I was just watching them interact. That was subhan. That was beautiful for me. Um, and then he 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 always tells me he's like that was the best time of my life. He Mashallah. loved the environment there. You know, and he, he's like the, the, the one thing he mentioned is like, I saw a great ulama there, your teachers, and the way they were all sitting with such humility on the khatam day, he's like, that's the greatest thing I took away from the scholars of South Africa. Mashallah. He's like, this, this is the reason why Deen Kakam is so powerful there. I saw this, I saw the ikhlas. It is a small thing. The way they were just sitting, the, the, it was real humility I saw in them. Mashallah. Big ulama. He's like, that really touched me. And I was like, that's 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 that was um, an important statement and observation because he's been doing the work of Dean for 35, 40 years. Mashallah. So for him to observe something and that might seem minute, right? It's not like some huge academic point or I heard one of your stars make this amazing point or this one liner. But it was, you know, sometimes these things are uh, what show shows us a real ikhlas and real sincerity. So, you know, it was just a beautiful experience at Khatam. SubhanAllah. I can't, uh, you know, I feel like this, some, there's some things in life you can only have once. Mm-hmm. Right, and you can't duplicate it and replicate it. That, that for sure. 
there will be an, there will never be a replica for that day for me inshallah 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 so afterwards after graduation you came back to the states um what were you doing at that time i was supposed to move to atlanta georgia and start mm-hmm. doing imamat there but things didn't work out so i came back to chicago uh, 2015 january um after gra- I graduated 2014 december 25th 2015 january i was back here i was looking for a place to start teaching i wanted to, my my initial uh interest was i wanted to go into ta'lim i wanted to teach quran in any capacity right Mashallah. so <clears throat> and then so after atlanta didn't work out there was a potential for islamic fund uh, ifs uh, that also didn't work out um so then um i actually got married in march of that year Mashallah. and then my first uh, teaching position was in dallas texas at masjid yasin Mm-hmm. So I taught Tahfiz al-Hifz program there for one year. Mashallah. So that was my first uh, um, place of teaching was Masjid al-Yasin in Dallas, Texas. In 2015, I started in the summer. Mashallah. And then when did you, you're currently at Islamic Foundation North, yeah, correct? So, yeah, I spent one year there uh, at Masjid al-Yasin. I taught at uh, West Plano Masjid for six months. Mm-hmm. And I was able to spend one Ramadan there, do Tarabi there. And then... Uh, I decided after a year and a half that I wanted to be closer to my family, right? Because I had already spent 10 years away from them. Mm-hmm. So I, I felt like uh, long term, I want to settle with them uh, because I, I didn't want to be someone who was just const- forever away from my mom and dad because I already spent 10 years away from them. So yeah. I was like 28 years old minus 10 years. Yeah. You know, so like my little sister, a lot of her youth and stuff, I, she, I was away. Right? My brothers too, mashallah. Um, so I made the decision to move back to Chicago and then I just found I didn't even know there was a masjid called IFN because it's all it's Libertyville it's like 40 minutes from Wisconsin border yeah. right um so someone told my father about it and he told me he's like you should look so I applied there uh, alhamdulillah they had lot, you know and it worked out so I started I started teaching uh in February of 2017 uh in uh, Libertyville Islamic Foundation North so mashallah. they the, basically running the Quran Academy there mashallah mashallah now you're a hifz teacher you've been a hifz teacher for about four or five years now Uh, from 2015 to now, yeah. Okay, so five, five years, yeah, yeah. mashallah. So you, you, day in and day out, you're teaching kids. Mm-hmm. You're understanding their struggles, what they're going through. What advices would you have for students that are currently studying or memorizing or someone who's looking to memorize? So I would say <clears throat> advice for them. Yeah. So for me, the biggest thing I see in, uh, in students of Quran nowadays is we have to, as as just as, as a whole, as a community, as a, as people... who are striving to becoming uh striving for our or want our children to become hafiz of quran is we need to build strength in uh, their hips that's one place where I w- if i were to be honest that we have uh, if you look at our city for example if you look at chicago we have quantity but i feel like we can work on quality mm-hmm. right where we need um we want like 70% percentile of our hafiz should be strong not 30 or 40 percentile if you look at any field or, or profession if you say that 70 percentile of that profession or that particular uh niche is not doing well that, that wouldn't be deemed successful mm-hmm. right so i would say the quality has to improve so i think that each program has to s- establish a certain syllabus and a certain curriculum and certain expectation which they can't turn away from mm-hmm. right so that's number one the, the institutions themselves need to make sure that they have certain uh, guidelines in place that for our students to become hafiz they have to go through these uh, through this syllabus and without this we're not giving them certification he can finish somewhere else that's fine but that's the best way to maintain strength amongst our hafiz in general because it's really an issue we I, a lot of hafiz have reached out to me over the years and man, I, i'm 10 years out of madrasa my quran is weak 
Mm-hmm. Quran, it's not uh, my tajweed is weak. I need to get back into it. A lot of it because they left madrasa with it not strengthened and didn't follow up with their ustaz or didn't follow up with their Quran. It is a, it, it's it's um, I would say it's a bigger issue than we would like to talk about because uh, to be honest, there are a lot of hafaz who are struggling and those who are struggling. There's no I mean, there's no shame in that as long as they make niyyah to try to come back and they want to strengthen the Quran. But I would say the most important thing is when memorizing Quran, students need to focus on revision. And they need to strengthen the Quran. And secondly, is they need to memorize the Quran with tajweed. Mashallah. Right? That's something. Before I did Qira'ah, I had a small idea. But after studying Qira'ah, maybe it's because I went into that field and that's something that I deal with day in and day out. Because besides teaching Quran, I also teach tajweed classes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the strength of our hafaz is tajweed definitely is something that has to be looked at. Because memorizing Quran is not fard. Nor is it wajib, right? Mustahab sunnah. Whereas recitation of the Quran is correctly, uh, if someone, uh, at least the effort towards uh, reciting correctly is fard. It's absolutely fard, right? If you study Jazriya, right? One of Imam Jazri mentions that, you know, mem- the recitation of the Quran is hatmul lazimun, it's necessary. And whoever doesn't, fahuwa athimun, that one who doesn't strive in reciting the Quran correctly, he's sinful. So there's detail. There's a lot of, uh, you know, who's sinful? Is it just the average person? I mean, the accepted opinion, according to it mentioned in Jazariya or the the Shuruhat, is that that person, due to laziness and doesn't make any effort his whole life, he recites Quran incorrectly. That person will be sinful. So I feel like now, if a hafiz of Quran is not reciting correctly, we can't expect people who don't have the opportunity to memorize Quran. What standard could we hold them to? How can we how can we teach them? So the hafiz have to really strengthen the Quran. I would say revision is key. And to revise the Quran, uh, to really, from the beginning, meaning when someone knows one juz, two juz, three juz, from that time, the ustad has to impress upon them the importance of revising. One juz daily. One juz should be a minimum, and that should continue throughout your hips, and that should be the priority, not new lessons. So we have to shift our priorities towards revising in comparison to new lessons and I feel like the recitation of the Quran needs to be put at the forefront of these programs where sometimes when we're doing hifs tajweed is not really um, it's not really emphasized and it's not really lo- it, like we our teachers teach with tajweed but it ha- there has to be a certain standard of tajweed that mm-hmm. I think all hafaz should be at inshallah Right? So sometimes we're here, we're seeing that that's not the case, and that could that's alarming. But so I feel like syllabus. So it's, we can't blame either or. It's not completely the students' faults. Yeah. Nor is it the or the, the, both have to make some changes. I feel like mm-hmm. right. And no place is perfect. My institution where I teach, there's lots of uh, play. There's lots of room for improvement. But I would say re- revision of Quran, and the correct memorize uh, recitation of Quran are two keys. Right, and so that's the earlier conversation we had in Salatul Tarawih, very mm-hmm. important. Um, but yeah, emphasize a student should be able to recite after finishing Quran. One of my, I remember one scholar mentioned to me like he should be able to do thirty days of one juz a day every single day, uh, with no more than two mistakes, with correct recitation. Then you can say that his hifs is at a good level that we can work from there. There's different levels to everything. Yeah. That's a good hafiz. But then there's other hafaz who are. Just, you know, their, their knowledge of mutashabihat is just amazing. And yeah. then there's other hufas who have knowledge of mutashabihat, and then they, they're able to, then they also have added the, their recitations correct, but then they, they're able to, you know, describe what verse comes where, right? Mm-hmm. Description is one other, another level. So even hifs has different levels, right, of excellence. So the, I think the bare minimum should be at least, should be able to recite your Quran 
this is a way to gauge it. You know, one just a day for 30 days straight. Yeah. And you shouldn't have more than two to three mistakes. I've heard some scholars say that's a, that's a good place to start. Nice. And then you, you build. I know Mawana Ashabali a great scholar from the from India, used to mention that a half of the Quran should not recite less than three juz. But our teachers used to say that, look, the zamana and the time that we live in is difficult. Mm -hmm. So at least one juz a day tilawa is important. So for those hufaz, I would say that have whose Quran has weakened over time or or who are not satisfied with it, the number one thing I would say is just get back into the routine of reciting Quran. Most of us, Quran recitation is also like muscle memory. Start reciting the Quran. Just start reciting. Start reciting. And uh, you'll, you'll notice that your recitation gets better and worse if you start having gaps of reading. If you're reading all the time, your recitation stays crisp. Mm -hmm. So... That's the first step I always tell them. Don't worry about everything. Just first build your ta'aluq with the Qur'an, mm -hmm. right? And it's a daunting task to re-memorize. But um, don't let that, you know, the greatest blessing that we can get is Qur'an. So any every effort that you make to, to get it back or to build a strong connection with it, don't ever consider, it, don't ever look at it and uh, think, deem it to be, in, you know, uh, something small. It's, it's something it's something very, very big and important, inshallah. SubhanAllah. Uh, can you also provide any advices you'd have for anyone who's looking to study? For studying, I mean, mashallah, first of all, <clears throat> uh, traditionally, right, the Islamic sciences, mm -hmm. I would say, obviously, first, the niyyah is important, right? Uh, first, when I, when I mean by niyyah is obviously you want to study for the sake of Allah, but I'm talking about more, first, make your mindset up that I want to do this and realize it's a journey. So I would tell everybody that it's definitely a journey. And just like any other journey, there's ups and downs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, make an azam that inshallah, I want to do this. I want to be an asset to my community. I want to do this. And I want to learn for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And um, I would say that, look, look at yourself personally and make decision based on what's best for you with mashura. Right? Mashura is very important. So people that you trust, whether it's scholars, your parents, people that you trust who will give you, because when you go for nasiha, nasiha should be given. So if I come to you for nasiha, when I when I put uh, or I propose, or I put forth my issue, the advice that I should receive from you is you should be like, what is best for this individual? Mm -hmm. that's what, not what is convenient for me to say at this time. That's real nasiha. What's best for that person asking? So with mashura, but every person has a different situation. Like I mentioned, studying in Chicago, there's no harm. There's great scholars here and institutions. I just need it for myself to go out there. So yeah. first realize what's, what, what do I need for myself to be most efficient? So that could be, do I have to study here? Do I have to study? If you feel like you can study locally, I feel like now we have uh, good and strong institutions where, where you can study. If you want the overseas experience, Bismillah, why not? Right? Mm -hmm. No one should be able to stop you uh, as long as you feel like you um, want you want to do that and you understand there's going to be ups and downs. And you also understand that overseas doesn't mean everything's perfect. Mm -hmm. There's deficiencies there too. Right? Mm -hmm. Don't go overseas thinking that you're going to meet um, you know you're going to meet every all 700 students that you're going to come across are are, are angels. Right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't work like that. People have people have issues and difficulties just like we have here. So it doesn't mean that the grass is always greener on the other side. As they say, as they say, there's great institutions here. There's great institutions overseas. Figure out what works for you. Make mashura with trusted scholars, your parents. Get their duas. Make istikhara and then make a decision. Right? So that's what I would say. And then decide what type of institution you want to go to. So a lot of it is being introspective. A lot of it is uh, you have to really um, figure out 
where am I going to be most effective? Mm-hmm. Right. So I can't just say, well, the best is to go overseas. It might not be it's for, for someone else. The best might be to be within walking distance. Right. So if you live in Lombard, for example, you might your best bet, for example, is maybe for you personally going to Darul Salam, Darul Qasim, great institutions. A lot of respect for the, you know, Sheikh Amin is our senior. Mashallah. You have Mufti Azimuddin. You Mashallah. have so many ulama here. So, and they have good programs. Mashallah. Mm-hmm. Right. So now we have good, or whether it's an Elgin, we have good, strong programs here uh, in the United States. Um, oh, but if you, but like you said, some people, uh, A, either look for the overseas experience because they want it, or B, they need it. Right. Mm. And if that's the situation, make sure you do your homework. Look at the institution, figure out, look at what kind of syllabus, know what kind of madrasa you're going to, what kind of institution you're going to, uh, know the the background of uh, the place, uh, look at, uh, you know, your living court, like all, you have to basically do proper research and then make a decision. Obviously, don't rush into anything. Take your time, think about it. Uh, but obviously when it comes to good things, sometimes we over, we don't want to like, you know, let me take two years to decide where I want to go study. You made your mind up, you made mashura, you made istikhara, you have firm conviction that this is what you want to do. Bismillah, take action because we shouldn't delay khair also. So take, mm-hmm. you know, do your research. I would say research to answer your question. If I was to say one word is research, do your research, right? What fits you personally, inshallah. And then Studying deen, mashallah, we can, you can study deen anywhere, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's so many avenues now, alhamdulillah. There may, there may have been a time where studying locally was difficult. I don't believe that to be the case anymore. I feel like mm-hmm. you can study quality uh, in a quality sense locally. So being a hips, uh, one of the, uh, we'll wrap up here, but one of the final questions I had in my mind was being a hips teacher, mashallah, how are you able to, or is there any time where it gets kind of overwhelming or difficult to listen uh, to the students, nine to five, you know. Every day it does. <laughs> Every day. I recently, uh, I I just I wrote something on Facebook. I was like, um, I started teaching from Mihrab Institute, so I teach Tajweed. Like we, cause we we put together a one on one syllabus for high school and college mm-hmm. students. So I wrote, I'm like, <clears throat> the last nine weeks of me teaching there has given back some of that sanity I've lost in the last six years of teaching hips because. Teaching uh, middle school and youngsters Quran is honestly it's it's super draining, and actually that's why teachers have summers off. If you look at even uh, uh, if you look at Western academia, yeah. teachers have so many days off. You know why? Because they they need it. <laughs> yeah. And even now, there's there's studies being done like uh, the, the, there's actual polls being done with parents' appreciation levels of teachers has gone way up during the coronavirus because <laughs> because yeah. every day parents your stu- your kids were away from you for seven hours of the day. Mm-hmm. You didn't realize what adding seven hours of taking care of maybe middle schoolers or youngsters does to you. So they're like, the appreciation now is like 85% or higher of just a of teacher, right? So I would say that um, <clears throat> that's, that, that's, uh, that's very, that, that's important. And um, yeah, so teaching hips, I would say that the difficulty you mentioned, right? Regarding yeah. difficulty of it every single day. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it's, it's hard, it's, it's tedious to listen to like five, six, seven just every single day. Mm-hmm. Because you're not listening to um, Sheikh Bas's recite or Sheikh Minshaw. You, you know, right? You're not listening to so. You're not listening to Qurra of you know, like or some amazing. You put some Qari in. I listen to him for ten hours, no problem. Yeah. Someone might get tired, but it might take five hours. We're listening to students who we're trying to develop. Mashallah. So that that in itself is it's hard to listen to one juz might take fifty minutes, and then you're not listening for comfort. 
When you're driving somewhere, someone might put on Quran for comfort. It's mm-hmm. beautiful. We're listening to Quran to help someone to be able to recite per- and to perfect their reading and to help them. So, I mean, there's times where, you know, teaching hifs becomes overwhelming. But you realize that that's, um, I mean, like like I said, every uh, imam is overwhelming. Being mm-hmm. a da'i is overwhelming. When you're in this, being, when you when you tread this path, that's what somewhere was touched to say, be ready for mashaqqa, difficulty, and be ready for hard work. Sure. If you don't want to go through those two things, then go do something else, mm-hmm. right? And don't expect people to appreciate what you do every single day. Yeah. If you want that, then go be an athlete or, or like, you know, <laughs> where there's, there's many other professions where you are, well, you're, maybe you're considered by the mainstream, will have way more, um, they are readily accept or they readily are, <clears throat> uh, you know, they, they know what you do or what you're, yeah. what you're about and they, they value that. That's you sure. might not get that, but what's your niya? What's your intention? Mm-hmm. So you, you just have to, Keep going, keep going. So there's days where it gets tough. Uh, I feel like mental health, the concept of mental, mental health days is very important too. For sure, teachers, yeah. there's just days where you need to just one day away, relax and come back. Yeah. yeah, I feel like, honestly, I could say that every single day I have a moment where I'm like, what the heck am I doing? You know, I could just be, I should just try to figure, do some, I should just do some. There's other ways of me propagating deen or doing other work. Why am I doing this? But there's that connection with Quran and there's something Mashallah. that I just love about it. You know, and last year, we ha- this last summer, we had our first graduation where we had Mashallah. four Hufas finish. And Mashallah. this year, we're looking at three. So when Mashallah. I see that, I'm like, you know, <clears throat> if that's all I have from my account, if when I leave this world, that's that's going to be the most valuable thing, inshallah, if Allah accepts it. Amen. So, yes, there's going to be, like, the difficulty is there. The mashaqqa, the hard work, uh, days where I don't want to do it. But you just have to sort of battle through that. And I feel like uh, speaking to other people, it's everybody feels that in their professions, mm-hmm. right? Uh, regardless if you're in the – whatever job you're doing, there's days where you just like – you don't want to get up and go to work, you know? <laughs> so we all deal with that as human beings. Yeah. So I think we have to be uh, – you know, there has to be a sense of compassion for just humanity in general. Because all of us have days where we just don't want to do stuff. Some are harder than others. Mm-hmm. Definitely hips is just – it's tedious, uh, you know, and just working with youngsters can be – hard on you you know because uh like now teaching high schoolers and college students getting across to them is i'm like subhanallah i have to mention something once and that's it it's done it, it's done you know where here is you know the the concept is takrar is over you know <laughs> our studies to say when you repeat something you strengthen it but he meant it for like our quran or you know studying a book i'm like with my students i do that i have to repeat something 10 15 20 times subhanallah and they still will have difficulty but um i feel like it's it's the the, the reward of it is just you know the, the feeling that you get of being able to help someone and then when, what I realized that when you're in this field of teaching, over over time, certain students, is nothing that you do, they build a connection with you. you know? And you, whether you want to or you don't want to, you sometimes they start looking at you as a, as a mentor. right? And, I, and it makes sense because I looked at my hostiles as mentors. Maybe some of them didn't see, them like, see themselves in that light, but there's been students who I taught in Dallas who call me. Mashallah. And they're like, I, I have Mashoda, I want to get married. What do I do? How do I do this? And they, so I thank Allah that they have that much trust and, and confidence to be able to call me. And, and the second thing is that that they have some connection with Deen. So if that, if that if that means through us, Alhamdulillah, right? We can't ask for more than that. So uh, a lot of students I, I get before they're they've even gone through puberty and they go through bulugh and they you know and they finish with me. So that taluk that you build with the individual for three years, four years together, that that bond is forged for many years later. Where they continue Mashallah. to come to you. I think there's no price you can be put on that. Definitely, sure. inshallah. 17 years ago, 
you were once a student memorizing with your teacher Manasad Sab. How is it now that you're in his position in the sense of you are now the teacher and you have your own students? Uh, you, I feel <clears throat> my level of respect, um, sympathy, compassion, just love for my ustads is just somewhere where it would never have reached where it is now if I had never taught, mm-hmm. knowing what a teacher goes through. Um, sometimes I wonder, will I be able to fulfill the haq like my ustads did with me? Probably mm-hmm. not, but we can make the effort, right? Manjadda, what we have to strive. Whoever strives, she shall find. So we just make effort. Um, but uh, honestly, <clears throat> you can't thank your ustad ever. There's nothing I can do to ever thank him or any of my other ustads. My ustads in Elgin or my ustads in South Africa, who I owe everything to for what Inshallah. they gave me, right? No amount of wealth, no amount of praise, no amount. Of, all, and all they ever want from you back is usually they'll just say, do khidmat of deen, serve the deen, and make dua for us. Mashallah. We want nothing else back. We don't want any monetary, you know, we want nothing from this dunya. And I, and, you know, people talk about ikhlas and sincerity. I saw with my own eyes the conditions that my teachers lived in, their houses. I saw their families and what kind of, their quarters of living. I never heard them complain once. I saw them smiling. And I felt like, subhanAllah, they, the things that we chase, those things chase them. Big time businessmen and people who are, uh, from a dunyawi perspective, are very affluent or influential. Used to come and sit at their feet. You know, sure. they have no value. I, I recently, I remember the story. I'll just mention the story. Qari Siddiq Bandubi Rahimullah. He was a great scholar of India. So uh, there was a few Ramadans that he came for to, for itikaf in South Africa, right? And he was a great scholar. He's actually one of Mu'an Aziz's Mu'an Aziz Sab's teacher and sure. Mu'an Tahir Sab's teacher, uh, and many scholars, right? So he was a great alim. And a great Qadi. So he was spent itikaf in Darulum Zakaria. So one year he was in itikaf, and one of a very extremely rich businessman who used to come for itikaf, he came to Hazrat uh, Qadi Siddiq Sahib and he, he said, I have a gift for you. And he gave him a gold Rolex, brand new. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, I mean, I don't have to say, we all know how a Rolex is it's, it's top of the line as far as value, it's worth. So he's like, I have this gift for you. So he gave it to him. He's like, you know, thank you very much. The man left. So Qadi Siddiq Sahib took the, the wash. He looked at it. There was a guy, there was a few workers who were doing work in the masjid, cleaning the window. So he, he told one of the youngsters, go call that, that worker there. He called him here. He said, here, take this watch. SubhanAllah. He's like, uh, he's like yeah, here's his watch. And he continued, oh, this amal. MashaAllah. No, that might be like, hmm. There's a lot of things you can think about that story. But uh, the point I'm trying to make is like, the, that value for the things that most of us value, we can say we don't value those things, but I practically saw it in these people. They didn't value these things. Mm-hmm. They didn't value possessions of dunya. They, them teaching and living in humble quarters and their life was fine. And the type of the, the sukoon and the tranquility I saw in their lives, I, I'll never see in anyone else's lives. Even though they didn't have nearly half the, as much money as I see people who I've been around today. But it just seemed like they had so much sukoon and, and tranquility in their lives because they understood what the reality of dunya is. And not even that, they just, they were 100% com, con, uh, content with what they were doing. Mashallah. So I hope one day I can get to that level of contentment where nothing around me affects me. I know that, man, whether this person praises me or no one praises me till the day I die, there's something that I'm doing that's giving me inner sukkah. And every man is chasing the same thing. Whether you're a, prof- a doctor, an engineer, an architect, uh, a, you know, or you're 
you're a CEO of a four, Fortune 500 company, or you're, you know, whatever you may be, every person wants tranquility, right? And but people, some people, regardless of the things that Allah gives them in the dunya, they they never attain that. Mm-hmm. But when with people of knowledge and ilm and taqwa, I saw them, and that was something that really touched me because there was nothing that they spoke about. It was because I can tell you to do something, but something that you observe from yourself will have a way bigger effect on your life. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was subhanallah. That that's something that I see. So uh, when I think about my ustads, honestly, it makes me emotional that I can't see my South African ustads. Mm-hmm. Right. I can communicate with them, but you know, their ihsan upon us and uh, upon students of knowledge is something I'll never forget. And just you know, sitting here 17 years later. Teaching, it's because of it's because of people like Moana Saad, my Ustaz Moana Muhammad, Moana Harun, Moana Zakaria, Moana Umar. Like I can, I, I want to mention every single one of my teachers, but I won't have time, right? Yeah, um, I don't want to leave anyone out, out of disrespect. But every single Ustaz that ever gave me anything, it's like you become their slave, right? As Ali radiallahu anhu said, if a person teaches me one verse, I become like his slave. And what did he mean by that? Is he literally a slave? No. But the amount of gratitude you are you are to show to someone who gives you ilm. You can't put that into words, right? So I, that, that's something that I'm, I think, uh, shukr, right? Shukr and gratitude is something that I learned from my ustaz. And I have that every day because of the way that they taught me and how passionate they were. And you really, you only understand their sacrifice now that I'm doing it. Yeah, yeah, so I wouldn't have if I if I was doing maybe imamat or some other line of work, Allah alam if I would have appreciated my teachers as far as from a talim perspective as much as I do because I teach. Mashallah, Shalajazakallah khairan for joining us. Um, really appreciate it. May Allah Ta'ala put barakah and afiyah in everything that you do. May Allah mm-hmm. Ta'ala allow, uh, you know, your four students that graduated turn into 400 students, inshallah. Mm-hmm. May Allah Ta'ala make it easy for you. May Allah Ta'ala allow you to keep teaching the Quran and keep having the love for the Quran as well. Mm-hmm. Mashallah. Again, uh, we can't thank you enough, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, if anyone wants to get in touch with Sheikh Uthman, uh, he is at IFN. He is the director of the Quran Academy. Uh, if anyone wants to get in touch with him, please reach out, inshallah. Jazakallah khairan. Jazakallah for having me. Oh, yeah, man. I appreciate it.